Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hey, everybody. It is your good friend, Dr. David Proden from down here in the North Star Recording Studio. So welcome to this evening. It is unusually warm here in Wisconsin, 74 today and sunny, which isn't bad for an October 18th. So yeah, and tomorrow's going to be warmer with a little more wind. So yes, um, I'll take it. I can get outside. I like that. So um, big developments here in the last couple of weeks regarding schools and the National School Board Association and the um, Attorney General, the FBI. So let's try to get a handle on what is happening here, at least identify the major players and kind of what their uh, positions are right now. So yeah, for those of you tuning in, our good friend Bacon Maldito in the house, um, give a thumbs up and give a dun, 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 follow. I appreciate it. So the title of this show, this is Safety Doc Podcast 155, and the title is FBI Planning to Investigate Parents and National School Board Association and Attorney General Garland memos, what you need to know about those. So let's first of all get in <laughs> how this kind of all started, right? Uh, so on September 29th, 2021, yes, the National School Board Association sent a letter, a six-page letter to President Biden. And in the regarding, like, what is this letter about? Um, the letter was about federal assistance to stop threats and acts of violence against public school children, public school board members, and other public school district officials and educators. So the National School, school Board Association sends this letter to President Biden. So let's talk a little bit about how school boards operate. There isn't a national school board. So there's this organization, which is really an advocacy organization, the National School Board Association. They don't make policies for boards. They have some trainings that boards can participate in, and they hold a lot of conferences, and they provide um, sponsorship opportunities for people who want to give them their money and say, you know, can we partner up on certain things? So I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, so, yeah, so you have this national organization who jumps in and does this letter to the to the president. Um, schools, schools, though, are actually under local control. So the schools are, uh, school boards are state level organizations. So there's a, there's a state organization that represents all school boards. So in Wisconsin, there's the Wisconsin School Board Association. And then every district has its own school board. So where I'm at, 421 districts, 421 school boards. So 
we're getting into this where the National School Board Association, which is the national association, which all of the 50 states you know, plug into, um, wrote this six-page letter to President Biden. We'll break that down in a little bit. That happened on September 29th, but it is the talk of the town here in the school safety world. Um, so I'm going to read to you an excerpt from the letter that was sent from the department or, hey, it's Joe Dolio, and it's Nicholas Skeels from Michigan. Welcome. Two-thirds of the audience from Michigan tonight. Um, so this is a 97-word sentence, by the way, <laughs> which is pretty wild. Like when I got done with it, you know, being an author, I'm like, I could never get away with doing a 97-word sentence. Like, okay. So this is the letter from the National School Board Association to President Biden, September 29, 2001. Okay. As these acts of malice, violence, and threats against public school officials have increased, the classification of these heinous actions could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. As such, NSBA requests a joint expedited review by the U.S. Departments of Justice, Education, and Homeland Security, along with the appropriate training, coordination, investigations, and enforcement mechanisms from the FBI, including any technical assistance necessary from and state and local coordination with its National Security Branch and Counterterrorism Division, as well as any other federal agency with relevant jurisdictional authority and oversight. Wow. Like, Okay, so in that 97-word sentence in this letter from the National School Board Association to President Biden, the statement saying that the action of uh, people, for example, attending school board meetings could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes, then asking for this multi-jurisdictional, intersectional branch of government to... <laughs> Um, bring all of its enforcement mechanisms together to address this. It is it it's crazy to read this. Um, and again, the statement this is quotes be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism. So, um, wow, taking that word for word right out of the public the public mem uh, memo. So. Um, Welcome to Sast Too Many, who's joined us over in the show. So, uh, welcome, Sast. On page five of the six page memo, it goes on to, to say this hate mail. So, it gets into a section saying school uh, board members, administrators, teachers are receiving hate mail. Okay, so there's a lot of generalized statements in the six page letter. And here's an excerpt this hate mail continues by stating, quote, they're, they're taking something that was written in a letter to a school official. You are forcing them to wear mask for no reason in this world other than control. And for that, you will pay dearly. Among other incendiaries, this same threat also calls the school board member a filthy traitor, implies loss of pension funds, and labels the school board as Marxist. So right there, I just read that from the, the letter. So, okay. Um, but um, is that is that a threat or is that a First Amendment um, protected speech, right? So 
Okay, let's go into this. Um, the person is calling them a filthy traitor. Well, <laughs> that's not nice to be called a filthy traitor, right? But being called a filthy traitor isn't a threat. Um, loss of pension funds. Well, a school board member really doesn't get a pension from being on the school board. And, you know, that implies if someone was to say that, right, I'm, you know, as a former school administrator, it's, I, I guess that would mean this person is going to um, possibly seek political office to change the way pensions work. I mean, like there's, that's, that's, something that isn't necessarily, that's not a threat, not necessarily, it's not a threat to say, you know, there could be a loss of pension funds. You know, maybe this person is going to go out and have a banner and say, you know, we need to uh, stop funding pensions or something like that. That would be their, their right. So welcome Juan from San Francisco. The Tenderloin is in the house. Hello, Juan. Um, welcome, 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 and Joe Dolio. So, um, so as Joe commented, it was all facts and opinions, but no threats. So, and labeling the school board as Marxist again—that's First Amendment. Um, so, the question of this of of that specific statement is, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're on the receiving side of that, that's unpleasant, but is it threatening? And I guess this starts to imply that the threat is in the eye of the recipient, right? So here's an example. Um, if somebody says to a, a school board member, you know, during a, more of a spirited discussion, <laughs> during not, at the start of a school board meeting, when people have their opportunity to address the board for usually between one minute to three minutes, and, you know, they're calling out somebody and say, I'm going to get you out of that seat, like your board say, I'm going to get you out of that seat. And, and you know, I'm, that's my that's my goal. So the person on the board could perceive that as saying that's a threat. Like this person has just said they're going to they're going to get me out of the seat. So maybe they're going to, you know, come up here and or maybe like when, when the meeting's done, I'm not sure. On the other hand, what if that person is saying, is thinking, I'm going to run against you or I'm going to support the person who's running against you. I'm going to work on their campaign. I don't think you should be on the school board. So I'm going to go about the the means to remove you, you know, from the, the school board. Meaning when there's an election, I'm going to run against you or someone else is going to run against you and I'm going to support them. So these are these are really broad interpretations, which are put into this letter, right? Like this is, you know, I'm reading things that are very subjective. And let's look at this. So the National School Board Association is is writing the president saying, hey, you know, bring in the FBI, Homeland Security and Department of Justice and help them um, make sure that, that this isn't happening in schools, right? So let me move down. So first of all, um, anecdotes aren't research. So another thing that happened was the National School Board Association was sending the, that example and other examples um, to President Biden. And if you send examples, right, like that is not that is not research. <laughs> so you can you know you can conduct research, right? You could study school board meetings. You could un try to understand what is what is happening at school board meetings or other public meetings, uh, municipality meetings, whatever. 
and then from that have findings and from your findings have examples, but you just can't take examples from some meetings. Just think about this. So we have, pull up Mr. Calculator here. In my state, we have 421 school districts. So 421 school districts, a school district meets at least once a month um, for a public meeting. So 420 times uh, 12 months. So what do we have there? 5,522 uh, meetings um, that would that would happen. So how many of these meetings are to the point where we have to uh, call for intervention of the counterterrorism division? Um, I mean, it's so anecdotes are not research. Our first point here, anecdotes aren't, re all of us could pull together anecdotes to support our position. And by the way, like this is a really um, bad anecdote to pull, you know, the thing here of the person being called a filthy trader implying this loss of pension funds, stuff like that. So anyway, let's, let's move on. So that was September 29th, 2021 school board association, national school board association, um, sends this letter to Joe Biden, six-page letter. Then on October 4th, October 4th, Attorney General Merrick Garland sends a memo to the U.S. Department of Justice. So I'll link these out in the blog posts. You can so you can read them, right? But so a quick response. And so it's, it's from the Department of Justice, October 4th. Justice Department addresses violent threats against school officials and teachers. So, whoa. <laughs> so it's a fast turnaround to get the National School Board Association, which is really nothing more than an advocacy group. You know, it's that's what it is. It's not an, an entity in government to suddenly get this response prompted. So let's go to the first paragraph. I'm going to read this verbatim uh, from this DOJ uh, memo on October 4th. First paragraph says, Citing an increase in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school board members, teachers, and workers in our nation's public schools, today Attorney General Merrick B. Garland directed the FBI and U.S. Attorney's offices to meet in the next 30 days. To meet in the next 30 days. So I'm going to come back to that. Next 30 days. With federal, state, tribal, territorial, and law enforcement leaders to discuss strategies for addressing this disturbing trend. These sessions will be open, dedicated lines of communication for threat reporting, assessment, and response by law enforcement. Okay, so again, <laughs> um, wow. First things first, um, 30 days. And let me know what you think about this down below. Uh, first, you know, thumbs up. Uh, if you can subscribe, let people know about it, trying to grow the, the podcast. And I've got a terrific guest coming on the next episode, um, an attorney. So I can't share any more about that as we're kind of putting that together, but it's going to be uh, pretty, pretty fascinating. We're going to dig into some of this additional school stuff here. But um, okay, so the Department of Justice sends out this memo and they say, hey, in the next 30 days, we want the Fed, federal, state, tribal, territorial, and law enforcement leaders to get together and kind of figure out a plan for this, right? 30 days is insane. Like, there's no way you can pull this off in 30 days, right? There's just no, there's no way. How can you appropriately make people aware of this so they can accommodate 
where are you going to hold these meetings? And, and oh, this is just insane. Like, there's no way you can do this in 30 days. By comparison, when I presented on PBS in 2013, I talked about the Safe Schools Initiative. So between the year 2000 and the year 2007, the federal government, the National Threat Assessment Center of the federal government held 339 listening sessions involving 77 million people across 50 states. And that was used to inform the Safe Schools Initiative. So that multiple hearings in states, input sessions, community members, board members, um, administrators, police were, were there. 77 million people contributed to that. That took seven years. Here you're saying 30 days. 30 days? This is insane. 30 days that you have to put together this, this um, federal, state, tribal, territorial, and local law enforcement you know, leaders to discuss this? So what's the what's the reason why why the thirty day? Um, I mean, it's even a, so. This is a face validity thing, right? So you look at this on face validity and say that doesn't make sense. Like you can't pull that off in thirty days and in, in fifty states. Um, it's it, it, so let's move let's move on. Um, so here we are. Let's let's go back through our timeline. September 29th. The National School Board Association, which is a advocacy group, right? And all of the school board groups in the country pay in to be a part of this national group, which helps lobby for school boards. Um, the September 29th, that school board organization, National School Board, writes a six-page letter to President Biden saying um, it's getting... Uh, too violent in our schools and our school board meetings, administrators, teachers, uh, you need to do something. And then on October 4th, the Justice Department, Mary Garland sends us this memo out saying that we're going to, in the next 30 days, we're going to get these organizations together and try to figure out how to get uh, strategies to address this disturbing trend. Strategies. So pause there. Like this should be a research. Um, there, there should be a research component to this, right? Like, if you really want to understand what is happening, for example, with school boards or how boards are interacting with their communities, you would partner up with research organizations or multiple research research organizations, universities, and study this. Um, everything from how the meetings are are noticed, how people are becoming aware of the meetings, to the location of the meetings, how board members conduct meetings, how they, they receive input, um, how they're giving feedback to, to people, security that's already present at meetings, are there expectations that are stated at the start of meetings on here's what you can say during your open comment. So I've been watching board meetings and one is like, there are a number of board meetings, people are bringing them to my attention, say, hey Dave, like they're online now, like look at this board meeting that wasn't even run <laughs> with Robert's Rules of Orders, which is like, you know, first emotion and then, you know, second emotion and, and something, there's so much turnover on school boards. Like part of this is the national school board association and the state associations need to figure out what's happening with their school boards and make sure there that the way that they interact with public comment is, is appropriate. 
Um, once public comment is done, you're not supposed to continue to interact with people in the audience as a, as a board member. And that's where, it's, and I've seen that on video. And that's where it starts to, the, the meetings start to lose shape. So part of this is you need this robust research component. If you're really going to figure out what is happening with with meetings and how we interacting with people. So like that's not happening in 30 days, right? That's a, it's just kind of out there. So Juan wrote, um, you'd be horrified on the safety measures. Uh, San Francisco uh, takes literally homeless encampments outside most schools. Whoa. Um, and let's see here. Um, Joe Dolio, this is a self-licking ice cream cone. They will call people terrorists and arrest them for terrorism and acting like terrorists. So, so here we are. So let's try to figure out the direction that this might be going. So in my work in teaching legal course or legal issues courses to aspiring school administrators, um, I'm, I'm asking the question, what does this mean for you right now that this is, this has come out, right? Um, so one is this whole thing, there aren't going to be FBI agents at your board meetings, um, just because, right. We have, where are those people going to come from? I mean, that's that's just not the case. This is forensic, so you have to start thinking forensically as a as a school board. What is what does this mean? Um, does this mean that school boards are going to say, "Hey, you can come into the school board meeting"? That's okay. You have to show ID. We have to know who you are. Write down, you know, who you are, and we are going to have cameras not only on the school board, right, um, but we're going to have cameras faced at the audience. So is that what we're going to see? I've seen it already at athletic events, okay? I've seen this at athletic events um, where high school athletic events, now you come in and th there's a sign that says you're being recorded and, you know, if you boo or something like that, um, we have the right to ask you to leave or we can, you know, call law enforcement and, I, I guess, through a disorderly conduct, um, compel you to leave, right? So if I am presenting to a school board, I certainly, one, want to make sure that I am recorded so that somebody with me is recording my presentation because that is probably going to now uh, be a, a record, right, that the school School board meeting, they record it. They have this on record. Um, I want to make sure that whatever I present, I want to make sure that I have my statement is is written, and I'm reading from you know my my written statement. Um, but this is this is a big change. So, how many school boards are going to start recording the the audience uh, just in general? And and what does that require for for messaging? Do you have to put that you are being recorded or do you not have to be, do you not have to do that, right? Um, so I, I don't know, I'm gonna find out the kind of the answers to that locally what's happening here in the next couple of weeks as I'm instructing classes, specifically asking what what's the interpretation in your locations? So yeah, this is, this is pretty, pretty wild. Um, I have dyslexic fingers, says Sast. Okay. So, um, so here's something else school. Okay. So 
The Justice Department will also create, this is from the Merrick memo, right, October 4th. The Justice Department will also create specialized training and guidance for local school boards and school administrators. This training will help school board members and other potential victims understand the type of behavior that constitutes threats, how to report threatening conduct to the appropriate law enforcement agencies, and how to capture and preserve evidence of threatening conduct. Okay, how to capture and preserve evidence of threatening conduct to aid in the investigation and prosecution of these crimes. So this again is forensic. The statement, as I'm interpreting it, if I'm a school administrator reading this, I'm on Board of Educating reading this, um, you're gonna receive guidance on how to capture and preserve evidence of threatening con conduct, which means surveillance, right? Cameras um, that you, it, because, in an investigation, if you, one, interfere with that, right? So if you're trying to edit something out of a board meeting, so there's a, a public board meeting and it's live and and something gets um, presented, you know, maybe like foul language or whatever it is that, that you want to go in and, and edit out, that would be that would be considered a potential spoilage of evidence that you're altering evidence. So... I think there's going to be guidance that will come out and it's probably going to be through these, uh, through the FBI, right? Through the department of justice saying, Hey, here's how to, here's how to capture this stuff. Every letter you get, keep it. Here's how to scan it. And then the question comes in, right? I'm thinking more and more along the lines of, um, well, when we had people who, when we had the, the safer at home orders with, with COVID, uh, Bellevue, Washington, by the by the end of March, right? Because I, I posted a, a video of this, had a website where you could report, you know, if your neighbors had uh, too many people at at their house, too too large a gathering, and you could drag over the location of the house, you could drag over pictures of the party or whatever. So, what is the guidance that's going to come out? What is going to come out to schools or IT? Is there funding? Probably, right? That's going to be directed at, um, not only, you know, surveillance, uh, video, all of those types of things. And also, um, again, if you are attending these meetings, um, you know, typically to attend a board meeting, you just attend it. Now, there's one board meeting where the annual budget is voted on and then you have to prove that you live in the in the, the district. But I mean, for both most board meetings, right? You're, you don't have to identify who you are when you're coming into a board meeting. So this will change. Um, and now if you if you say something, right? Um, this can can significantly uh, be well, I, I, how the interpretation is like, you know, if you say, I'm, I'm gonna get you out of that seat and that's perceived as a threat, maybe that's investigated. Oh, what did they really mean by that? And it's like, what I really meant by it is, yeah, I'm, I'm either campaigning against you or I'm going to support someone who's campaigning against you. It wasn't that I'm going to come up there and drag you out of that seat. That's not what I said. So this is, um, it definitely puts positionality into the game, meaning that the school um, is is in charge and, and holds a, a lot of levers here. So, um, so Bacon that the has said the Tattletale program was in all places Bellevue. Um, yeah, where where TJ Martinell used to to live. I was glad I, I captured those 
screenshots and all of that stuff when I did because uh, people, um, that, those things came down pretty fast. Uh, so, so yeah, I think this is going to, something similar is going to happen with school boards um, and schools, right? There's going to be tips for threat reporting, but threat reporting isn't going to be what we traditionally think of threat reporting, like what came out of the Safe Schools Initiative, which, you know, had every state involved in, in meetings over years. It's going to be threat reporting of saying, you know, is a, is a parent making threatening statements toward a school or, you know, toward a board of education? Um, any letters to the editor that are printed? Anything now becomes evidence, right? Everything is there for discovery. Any statement you say, no matter what it is, becomes a record. Um, your behavior, right? Your body posture, your tone of voice, all of this contributes to a record now. You'll say, Dave, like not everybody records their um, you know, school board meetings. That's true, but I think more will. And there's another reason um, for that. I think recording school board meetings um, helps boards identify that they had discussions about activities and things like that. Usually they're written in board minutes, but um, but I would I would think there'll be a recommendation. Hey, I mean, what what is the cost of a camera, right? I mean, and then you'd have to save that file. So again, the Justice Department is going to give this training on how to report to law enforcement agencies, which schools know how to do that anyway, right? If there is a, a board meeting or a, there is some threatening behavior, um, they know to contact 911 or to, you know, uh, get a hold of their local police department. And this isn't as prevalent as, as what this is made out to be. Yes, it's a problem, just like, you know, we saw what, I don't know, the football game over the weekend in the NFL where they were throwing all this or is college football or throwing stuff on the field and things like that. And, but this isn't unique to schools. I mean, we've seen people disruptive in airports, you know, because the flights are delayed or, or city meetings, um, you know, passing ordinances and things like that. So this is a general uh, behavior that people are kind of doing, but, in general, if we take again the number of school board meetings, the number of schools, and the number of school board meetings, you'll find that this isn't as prevalent or as severe as what the National School Board Association made it out to be in its letter to Joe Biden and then also this response. So, get this um, states are responding, states are, are dumping their association with the National School Board Association. So as of the time that I've I put this together today, 18 states, their school board associations got out of the NSBA, the national organization. So they might have been part of that organization for 60 years. And now they're like, we're out. <laughs> like, you've sent this letter to the president and you didn't get input from us. We're not on board with uh, making parents think that the FBI is going to be present at board meetings and kind of like, where did you come off on this? So here are the states who have, who have said we're out. Like we are, we are not standing with the National School Board Association. Alabama, Arkansas, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Jim Mallard in the audience, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Texas, 
Virginia, Wyoming. So that'll likely grow. Um, so here's here was an interesting part of this. So there's a group called Parents Defending Education, and they're kind of like gathering up all of the information on this <laughs> from the state organizations. And what they did is, is they, so it's pretty cool. I'll, I'll link it out the website, Parents Defending Education, and, and they're compiling as it comes in the responses from the state um, school board associations. And so here's one that, here's what they did. So they sent letters to the state school board organizations and they asked them three questions. And here are the three questions. Um, as the state association, um, you're okay. So the letter to the September 29th letter to president Biden requested federal intervention in local school board issues, which likened civic participation to domestic terrorism and hate crimes in quotes, because yes, that was in the letter incited the Patriot act parents defending education would like to know whether your organization was involved in the creation of this letter and whether you agree with its substance and tone. If not, have you contacted the National School Board Association to let them know? That's the first question. <laughs> so, like, were you contacted by this as a state organization, knowing, like, the organization above you that's advocating sent this letter? Did you even know that was going to happen? And by the way, like, none of none of the states did. This was a unilateral move by the NSBA. But, um, and then how do you feel about that? So, and I'm going to read some of the responses, which are, <laughs> which will, clearly tell you um, that the states are like, this is a state control issue. And also like, this is hyperbole and you are um, very much posturing um, parents in a negative light on, on, on this and, and making this uh, more contentious, you know, when we have board meetings, you know, parents thinking that they're going to come in now and, and possibly be recorded and the recording sent to the FBI. But, Okay, so that's the first thing. Were you part of this, um, forming this this letter? And the second question was, can you please tell us how going forward your organization, so this is to the state, how your state organization defines intimidation, harassment, and threat? Okay. And three, finally, do you plan to report individuals in your state to the U.S. Department of Justice, or do you believe that concerns can be adequately managed by local and state law enforcement? So the number two part is, can you please tell us going forward how your organization, state organization, defines intimidation, harassment, and threat? So that's that's different across states. There is not a single definition um, for all 50 states for intimidation in a school setting, harassment, threat. I think I I wrote about this in School of Airs, where my book, School of Airs, um, when schools report out threats and violence, some some places like North Carolina, it was like 103 categories. In other states, it's like 15. I'm like <laughs> um, one is, you know, it was a fray, you know, like a fight between two people and, and stuff like this, or a, a, a conflict over gambling issues. I mean, so so what is this? What is intimidation? What is harassment? What is threat? How do you I I, I identify those where if I'm saying it, you're saying it, we're pretty close on that interpretation. So we have inter-rater reliability. So how do you do that? And then again, the last thing is just asking the states, hey, like now that the, this has happened, <laughs> these, this letter and this memo, um, are you going to start reporting things to the DOJ? Or do you think 
you're you're going to try to and be able to address these at a local level. So, um, so let's go down to Arkansas. But before we do that, let me visit the chat. So the Mallard report um, wrote: uh, schools don't handle things well with students, let alone adults. So, yeah, and and the Board of Education isn't isn't meant to um, it, it isn't <laughs> meant to manage resp- um, threats to a district, right? That's really the role of either the superintendent, local law enforcement, the, you know, boards of education don't do that. They don't investigate. Um, it's a policy. They, they are a policy organi- organization, you know, your board. So, um, and let's go down to uh, SAST was writing, the police will just about um, do anything they're told to do. Now, SAST, a, a variable in this too is um, some of the schools don't have police liaison officers anymore. Like in the last year, they voted to um, to disconnect from, from their local law enforcement. So this also has a variable in it where you're, you're kind of, well, I mean, not kind of, right? Your these statements are are suggesting that law enforcement at least should be present during during board meetings or other meetings during the school. Not only law enforcement, like agents, FBI agents. I mean, what what is it really saying here? Uh, because in the last years, schools have disconnected to an extent with like school resource officers and, and things like that. So. Um, Juan wrote, I'm willing to go to jail. Well, Juan, don't go to jail. I'm willing to go to jail. I have video evidence of the staff walking around maskless. It's hypocrisy. Yeah, so again, at a time when we're trying to to figure out um, consistency with masking and and it's tense and it's it's toggled on and off, right? Yeah, I wrote about it in my book, Velocity of Information. You know, in May, it, it was kind of declared that you know, COVID was done, right? What, what was it? May 13th, the CDC saying, hey, like if you've been vaccinated, you don't need a mask anymore. And, and you know, all of the changes since then. So these school boards are, are, are okay, the CDC changes position, the World Health Organization changes position, National Institute of Health, um, their local counties change position. So they're like, what should we do? Like, here's where the National School Board Association um, should be jumping in. Like they should be leading the way on here. Here's how to inform yourself. For example, on making decisions on how to mitigate a virus in your school setting, which isn't just mask, but it's like, how do you identify high touch surfaces? How do you, and help national school board association help with your school boards of giving them talking points on this and sample videos, like during a board meeting, how to present this to people. And they're not doing that. No, this is where they're going. You know, and really, it's beckoning somebody else to come in and and to do this this heavy handed work, which um, I don't believe the districts th- these states want. So here's what Arkansas said. So Arkansas, um, their response to these three questions: one, were you involved in in creating this memo? Two, how do you de- how do you define intimidation and, and things like that? And three, like, how are you going to handle this? Are you going to call the feds? Arkansas said one. The Arkansas School Board Association was not consulted by the NSBA prior to the letter being sent, and we disagree with much of the substance of the letter. 
School board meetings should be a place of communication, discourse, and productive okay, and pr productive decision-making for the betterment of students. Board meetings should be locally governed and unhindered by outside intervention until at such time the district requests assistance. Whoa, Arkansas. So Arkansas is like, no way. Like, get out of here. Um, you know, this is, you, we weren't consulted on this. The second part, Arkansas says, our districts define terms such as intimidation, harassment, and threat within a context of their own particular situations. Right. So that is laminated to context and time. Right. So um, if you if you're watching a video snippet of something um, and you, you don't have the broader context of it, and maybe it is a very spirited discussion, um, but maybe there's maybe it again in that broader context, you look at that and say, this isn't intimidation, harassment or a threat. And, you know, certainly if someone stands up and throws a chair at a board member, you know, that that should not be tolerated. But, you know, we are we're kind of talking about statements, how statements are interpret, inter, interpreted. Right. So the third thing from Arkansas um, saying, are you going to call the DOJ going to handle this locally? Arkansas School Board Association is member oriented and only provides assistance at the request of local districts. So state organization is saying if local districts in Arkansas contact us, we'll help them out, but only if they contact us. Um, it is the decision of the local school district whether or not to seek law enforcement assistance at the level they so choose. So they're basically saying, hey, it's a, if the local district feels that something warrants involvement of the FBI, they can seek that, but they can also seek to contact, you know, local law enforcement. Again, you know, let's say a scenario where somebody stands up um, and, you know, destroys property or, or kicks down a podium or something like that. So, um, you know, let's go to Delaware. Delaware. What was that? Wayne's World? Delaware. Delaware. All right. Let's go to uh, Woke Chewy. Woke Chewy, welcome. Um, thank you for being in the house. Um, and I'm going to go up... Um, Sass too many, they will arrest just for breach of peace. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, this is all very open right now. Um, and Andrew wrote, remember the old video of a wrestling match where the whole audience threw their chairs onto the stage and burned the, <laughs> buried the wrestlers? I, I don't. Um, but you brought up a great point here, Andrew. And please, like, um, if you think of things, you know, put them down below in the chat or if you have like a, um, or in, in the comments or you're like, Dave, here's like a, a article from where I'm at about, you know, what's happening and how schools are responding to it. Put it down below uh, because, yeah, I, I want to know what's your, what you're seeing in your area or if your school, if you participated in a school board meeting recently in your school board has, uh, if you felt the meeting was out of control or maybe it wasn't or if it wasn't clear, like, did you, did you know you had a minute to talk or three minutes to talk? Were you asked to prepare things? Were you able to record yourself? Like put that down, put that down below. Um, so yeah, throwing, throwing those chairs up um, and bearing the wrestlers. So Andrew, when you talk about that, another issue that's been happening for the last few years, that's escalating is violence uh, during sporting events at schools. And even refs who won't 
officiate some of these some of these events. So that has been um, increasing, but again, it's not part of this specific discourse. And the way though that that was addressed in a lot of districts, um, you know, was very much signage, our expectations, you know, that of, of you as a fan. Um, and so it was, it's different. Um, I just, I, I don't, I don't quite get how, how all of this is, is moving so fast, but, um, but yeah, so and, Andrew, yeah, you brought that up and, and some of the school stuff where, yeah, they've had to, you know, boot people out of games or, or take a break in some games. I mean, it's it pretty, can get pretty heated, but again, I mean, these aren't, this isn't happening a lot. And you can say, yes, well, there was a game where somebody, you know, had a gun at a game, which is horrible. Um, and, and, you know, that needs to be addressed, but I mean, again, if, if we extrapolate it, you know, overall gun va- violence and, and what is happening across all settings, um, you know, what are, what are efforts, um, you know, to address that schools, schools are doing, what, what I'm trying to, to get to is that most of the school board meetings are very civil, right? And even school board meetings that have very um, spirited discussion on on topics of curriculum or on mask still remain civil. And, um, you know, that the interaction remains, uh, remains positive. People aren't afraid to come to a board meeting and, and things like that. So, so this would make, this would give the impression that, that this is, you know, a preponderance of board meetings, and it simply isn't. Does it warrant a study? Does it does it warrant um, some analysis and education, and and just the, even that questioning of down to the board levels of, hey, are you are you experiencing this at board meetings? Then what can we do to either change how the meeting is conducted, or to have a better um, expectations, right, of, of, and let people know, if you, if you come to a board meeting and, you know, you knock over a podium or you're swearing or something that, you know, that can be disorderly conduct. But again, I mean, that's just not the behavior I'm typically seeing. Um, so, so Delaware said in their statement, um, to this, again, the, this, uh, organization, I'll, I'll put it right here, the Parents Defending Education, which is asking all 50 states, what do you think about this? So the Dell Board School Board Association has seen school board meeting protests, some of which have become quite impassioned. However, we have received no reports of violence or threats of violence towards school staff or school board members. The Delaware School Board Association does not condone violence of, or threats of violence towards students, staff, or board members. After consultation with the governor's office, the public health department, and the Delaware Department of Education, the Delaware School Board Association, representing all of the school districts in Delaware, developed and issued guidance to school board presidents regarding how to best handle board meeting protest, which included the ultimate use of local law enforcement if absolutely necessary. This guidance was issued prior to the NSBA September 29th letter. The NSBA letter to President Biden was unnecessary and, quite frankly, not helpful. That's from the Delaware School Board Association. So where in the world, the NSBA, National School Board Association, writing this letter to President Biden, 
they call Delaware, Delaware would be like, hey, we already addressed this. Like, and here's our template, right? You're, you don't need to do this. Like we've, we will share this with the other states. Like if we, was maybe what we should do, right? We should use you as a clearinghouse on, on best practices with this um, and pull out, um, you know, maybe our, our state can be a model in this, but you know, Delaware, their, their last sentence, you know, the NSBA letter to President Biden was unnecessary, quite frankly, not helpful. Yeah, correct. Um, so again, this is, this is where a national organization has no, it's not dialed into what its state members are doing. And the state members in some cases probably aren't that dialed into what their local districts are doing, but at least they're closer. So, so what's happening again is, is you have 18 of these states that have pulled out their membership from the state, from the federal organization, national school board saying, <laughs> no, we're not a part of this anymore. Uh, you didn't consult us. We don't agree with this. And no, we do not want the department of justice issuing guidance. We don't want parents to be afraid that, um, they're going to be reported as domestic terrorists for speaking out at board meetings. Um, we don't want that. Um, so let me, let me go over to the chat. Um, Wook Chui, what's up doc? So yeah, it's hot. I wouldn't say it's hot here, but like it's 74 and it's October 18th. So I guess it's like almost 20 degrees above typical. So um, and, and the grass is still green and the leaves haven't changed colors yet. So interesting. Um, bacon, throwing a chair is a surefire way to start a riot, according to the historic um, animated <laughs> document of the boondocks. So um, Andrew, I uh, forgot about that. So yeah. So again, um, a few things here is the doc, hey, school errors, rethinking school safety in America. It is the most honest book about school safety and just a lot of really good stories in here. So that one is available. The new one, the Velocity of Information Rethinking School Safety in America is going to come out in February. So I'll be doing specials on that. Um, excited. That's not a school safety book. It is an analysis of how people handle chaos, whether it's short-term chaos or chaos that lasts years. Um, so that's going to be an awesome, it's, it is an awesome book, but um, I'll be doing shows ex explicit to that. Not explicit shows, but centered on that. So, okay. So again, you know, let me know how you're feeling about this. Um, and, and post below, subscribe if you, if you haven't, uh, please do that. So a few, a few of the big problems that I see. So again, let me put my perspective on this. I am someone who was an administrator. I am someone who attended hundreds of school board meetings, um, mostly on the side of administration, but you know, also audience um, members and being an audience member. And here, and as someone who instructs legal issues courses for aspiring school leaders, so here's here's what kind of jumps off the plate for me when I'm. I'm trying to figure this out. One is, um, so the national, the, the letter from the national school board association to the, to president Biden, along with this Garland memo to the department of justice. So the question is like, so first, like what's the priority of the FBI? 
is this something that we need to be bringing the FBI and we need to be citing the Patriot Act and, and all of the, the different agencies that go into that, into, into schools? I mean, it, we already have um, organizations, National Threat Assessment Center, which would have, you know, could have been brought into this, which already exists and, and look at, you know, um, how boards, uh, board meetings are being conducted, how people are presenting themselves at board meetings, letters that are coming to school. So letters, letters, World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So FDR's fireside chats. So remember this, um, FDR's fireside chats, FDR would do, um, it's kind of like a, a short podcast, right? So he started the tradition of, you know, 20, 30 minute radio chat, you know, my fellow, uh, my friends and, you know, Americans and, um, you know, he talked about some policy stuff, but it was, it was, he would always include, write me a letter. Like, you know, it was back in the forties, right? Write me a letter. Tell me what you're seeing. Tell me about your struggles, your successes. And he got like, Oh God, I have to go. I wrote about something like 8,000 letters a day um, were coming in. And that's another, that was, that was, that, that's a time, right? When things aren't going well in the country and president, it was a really tough time to be a leader. And he's, he's telling people, Hey, like send me letters, tell me what's going on. And there's a part of this messaging and I'm, I work in my class with it. And you know, we talk about it. I said, you know, the, what besides board meetings, how are people giving input? Like, how are you welcoming? Are you seeking input? Maybe it's not what you want to hear. Like I, I wrote about some of the letters that FDR got, you know, so pretty fiery. And I mean, of course, you know, not threatening is, is well-being or anything like that, but you know, you're incompetent and you've driven this country in the ground, whatever it is. But, but there should be a part of this that we we learned from the way FDR approached adversity and and challenging times with the people that you serve. And I think that's where you open up and have more opportunities for people to speak. And especially maybe, you know, again, they can write things down or you can have additional like um, just uh, informative meetings, not necessarily board meetings where people aren't limited to their 60 seconds. Then the, their mic cuts out and they're told to step away from the podium. I mean, that is so, so if you have people that want to give input, which people do, um, that's a good thing, right? Like, I think if we get to a point where people don't want to give input, which is the point when someone's like, I talk about this, but I'm being recorded on the two cameras up there. And there's a sign up above that says, um, anything that I say or any of my actions, um, the board has the right to submit those to the Department of Justice or to the FBI uh, for forensic scrutiny, if I um, acted, um, you know, I, all of these things to go down and be like, whoa, like, okay, I'm not going to say anything, right? So the fact that we have a lot of people who want to give input at these meetings and to the schools and municipalities and things like that is a good thing. And we should we should frame that differently. We should look back to the kind of the FER approach and... Um, but people don't do that, right? I think they're afraid of the input, um, and and I I don't know. So let's go over to the to the chat. Um, so Bacon said, "Hey, Wisconsin." So CRS, my good friend um, Matt Hoover, CRS Fire 
arms. I guess we're in for a cold winter. So yeah, I've got I've I've got to burn my existing wood pile down. Like I gotta get rid of it before the new stuff comes in. Um, cause last year it warmed up and I wasn't able to burn everything out, which was a flaw, a mistake on, on my part. I should have just kept burning everything until it's, it was gone. Um, so Andrew, there was no issue FDR would walk away from, oh my goodness, Andrew, I know actually what you mean there. Um, so, but, uh, but yeah, the fires at chat thing was pretty, was an, was interesting to look at in, in inviting um so joe this has been a fantastic show i have to jump off and record tactile tuesdays with brooks says america getting out some solid tactile thank you joe and i'll be listening to that show tomorrow um and gore too afraid of input or tired of being ignored certain incriminating laptops are lost in certain agencies so right it's a great point one if someone is saying, I've said the same things over and over again, and either you're not acknowledging them or you're not doing anything. And that's where it needs to have this responsive side to it, that what you're saying is informing the process. Um, I, so I had um, I had some community meetings when I was an administrator. It was for food allergy policy, food allergy policy in school. And I had some parents who had students with food allergies who attended those meetings and, and, you know, they were, they were uh, giving their input, what they wanted to see as policy reflect in policy, what they want to see reflect in practice. And I said, um, yeah, tell me. Um, and, you know, we can demonstrate what we're thinking of, for example, in some of the, the signage things that we're going to do to make sure we don't have cross contamination, but ultimately I'm listening. We're listening, um, but you know we will make the decision. And sometimes, you know, in these organizations too, these schools have gotten to the point where they they have defaulted the the position, the decision making to advisory groups or to the parents. Here's here's a clear example of that. Start of the school year, numerous numerous school districts surveyed parents. Do you want in person? School, do you want hybrid or do you want face-to-face? That was a survey. And whatever came back as the most prevalent was what the school district did. So that's advisory, right? When you're asking that survey, that's advisory. Like you're supposed to make those decisions based upon the medical information that you have, uh, you know, the virus load information provided to you by the county, that dynamic information, um, what you're able to mitigate in your buildings. Um, and, you know, so just saying to parents, because then what's happening, right, is the school board looks at that and they say, okay, 80% of the parents want their kids back in person. So let's do that. Cause then we know 80% of the people are on board with us. Like, but what if it's, you know, whoa, we're, we're not ready to go back in person or we, so just it, it is it, there's so many advisory committees and advisory committees for curriculum where it's it's what gets voted on by the committee versus the curriculum director and ultimately having the board give a say so here's why a superintendent does that a superintendent will do that especially if they're new because they believe they're building this big community 
um, and they're giving a stake in what's happening in the district. And then actually, if a decision goes south, if something falls apart, the superintendent can say, well, that's what the committee voted. So then who's responsible, right? You can't delegate responsibility. Well, you just did, or the, your board of education just delegated across the 10 people who were in the committee. So it just loses its power. So some of that's happening too is, is you know, some of these processes that are happening in schools just aren't as tight as they should be. And now that's not an excuse for people's behavior and things like that, but there's room for change and growth on both sides here. Um, so one, so by doing this, the National School Board Association and then the Merrick Memo, it implies that some parents or community members interfa that interface with the board might be exhibiting a form of domestic terrorism. They come right out and said it, right out in the memo. So I'll have it <laughs> right there. And um, another thing is this discourages parents and concerned citizens from engaging in lively, respectful civic discourse. So what if you are now, um, you know, participating in a march um, around the, the school, right? You are protesting that the school, let's say because the school um, got rid of its mask mandate. So now you show up with a sign saying, um, you know, all kids, everyone should be masked or something like that. Let's just hypothetically say this, like you have a sign and you know you're holding it and you're on i don't know school ground or or something like that or i mean so so a, a typical um kind of what would be a peaceful protest um you know like think of for people striking things like, you know, just typical signs you see with sign you know they're not blocking access not throwing things at people and so what is that now of uh, something that's going to be scrutinized possibly by the Department of Justice. What does it mean too? Like if you're, this is something I've been digging into. Let me go over here. Um, so Andrew wrote, my 11 year old nephew would play on an iPad while pretending to be watching online schools. So I think a lot, <laughs> I think that happened a lot. Um, Bacon wrote, I'm not a parent, but I can't see why anyone would want their kids back in the system from what Doc is saying on top of all this. So, so I'm not anti-school. I'm I'm just I'm anti um, hyper management of a one size fits all for schools, right? And and this is this is it's trying to be so um, at a minute level, so manage and dictate with, and with such extreme consequences, right? So again, like if you are. Um, raise your voice at a board meeting. I mean, can that be interpreted now as, Hey, um, the department of justice might have means to investigate you. So it's like, Whoa, like those things are, are all over the place. And I mean, there are a lot of schools that do some ex extraordinary practices. And I think that's a part of I'm trying to convey on this too, is this is this, me all these memos, these letters make it seem like 50% of the schools are in dealing with this or, or they've just fallen apart and stuff like that. And that's not the case. Um, as Delaware said, you know, like we've got a pretty good handle on this and we've done some procedures and training and internally and stuff like that. And would have been nice if he would have called us, but um, Gormager distribution of responsibilities, like compartmentalization, Clary's theory 
on laziness comes into play when it doesn't fall on one shoulder. Everyone can just say, not my problem. True. That's, that's an excellent way to put it. Gormonger. Um, so that's been happening too, you know, is, is let a committee make a vote or send a survey out, you know, to parents, you know, what do you want? Whether it's, you know, it's, it's masking, it's curriculum and stuff like that. I've seen too much, way too much of that. So when, when parents are thinking, they see these memos and if they start, if they get anything from a board, first of all, if they see these memos they are going to be thinking this, but if they go to a board meeting and a board you know, meeting starts out with saying, Hey, we're going to record you. I'm not saying boards are going to do that, but up above, if they're saying, you know, um, the memo wants to figure out how boards are going to um, uh, preserve evidence of threatening conduct, um, capture and preserve. That's basically saying you want, the audience to be recorded during a board meeting, right? <laughs> there's there's really no other way to interpret that. Um, so parents are going to measure their words, right? They're going to be they're going to be careful about what they they say. Um, they're you're going to put parents in a position where they're going to lawyer up. I mean, and how many parents that attend board meetings can can suddenly open their pocketbook and retain a lawyer if they're now part of uh, some federal investigation? So by the way, like that is, I have no idea that has been clarified what that might look like. How does, how do you become aware if you are being investigated under this? Like the, the DOG, the DOJ is investigating you. The you know, school board sent this video to the Department of Justice. Let's hypothetically say like, how do you know that, you know, you're, you spoke at this meeting. Uh, is there evidence? Uh, are you, are you? What information is being gathered about you? I mean, that's unclear. It's so people are going to be like, whoa, and are they going to lawyer up? Um, it's going to discourage a lot of people from participating. And also, like, if you're running for the Board of Education, I don't know where this will fall. I don't know if it'll give a sense of empowerment um, or if it's going to make you, um, if it's going to turn you off from wanting to do that because they say, yeah, you know, no one. It's not like it was. It was it's not like you know people could give their say anymore. People are scared to do this, and you know I don't I don't want to do it. So, um, so there are as Delaware wrote, there are their school board association. There are are already means to address unruly behavior through things like just telling people knock it off. <laughs> like you know we have your turn to speak is done, um, and if you continue right we have, we, we might call, you know, law enforcement. Um, there could be disorderly conduct. You could be banned from the property. You know, these are extreme things. Like most people, like most people are very reasonable and they are going to, to leave and they're going to, you know, abide by, if, if you're very clear in putting um, out what your expectations are, they're going to abide by that. Um, they do, they do right now. Um, I, re I remember one school district I was working with um, and they, they received, uh, any, anyway, they received funding and they put in these ID scanners. So when you went to a school building, a parent would have to turn over their, their license and the school secretary would scan it. And then like in a minute, it would go through like this database basically. And if they had nothing outstanding, they could come into the school um, I know the formal name for the software, but I'm not going to say it. And this was in a really conservative rural district. And 
uh, you know, anti-government like signs up in yards and I'm like, Oh, like that's not going to go well. But you know, people, people did it because the school is very good at messaging and saying, now this is a system. I don't know. You know, I'm looking at this as a school safety expert saying probably not the route I would go, but you know, they were saying we want to have, we want to know who's in our buildings. We want to have a safe setting and the people agreed to it, you know, because it was very clearly communicated. We want, we want our kids to be safe our staff to be safe. And we want, you know, your, your kid, your kids, and we want you to be safe. So, but so schools had a means to do this. Usually they would just tell people, you know, knock it off and they would, they would knock it off. They're, you know, they're not saying, I'm going to wait outside until you come out of this school board meeting. Like it's typically not happening. Um, the, there's also this new burden on school districts now to preserve evidence. So through these, through the memo, you know, working to preserve evidence, again, if you're IT, your IT person in your school, this is probably a quick discussion. You know, it's happened with the board of education and, and legal counsel for the board. You know, I'll, I'll get tuned in more on this when I have a couple upcoming classes. Um, what is your, if you ask, if your board of education meets with your, your attorney, your legal counsel representing your school, in case you get sued, some issue, and say, hey, should we, you know, based upon this, uh, this memo coming out from Merrick, uh, do you think we should record the audience? You know, people sign in and record or have multiple cameras going and then everything gets saved, right? <laughs> and, and should we do that? I mean, I would think most attorneys would say, yeah, like you want to have that evidence, right? Um, and we're not in, we're not in this prohibitive era of 40 years ago where to try to get a camera in and stuff, you know, it'd be a big production. I mean, right. Like this will be a snap for districts to put in. Um, so, you know, a cam, a camcorder, right. I mean, a couple camcorders and, and upload. So again, number of districts already do video uh, recorded board meetings. Uh, but will you see this now at other meetings? Will you see this at sporting events? And I've seen it at some where I walk in and it says you are being recorded. Um, uh, and, you know, anything that you you say and, and whatever can be used. I, I don't know the exact wording of it. They also have it like on the back of the the thing you get the rosters of the players the sheet that's folded over and then in the back it says all of the these games are the audience is recorded for the safety of the every i don't know what it is but <laughs> that's different like didn't have that as a kid um so uh, gormonger wrote good point doc individual parents can't um can't have the weight uh when they can't get a lawyer yeah it's is very so this whole thing too is if you look at your parents who um, you you want to encourage your less represented parents to come into meetings. Um, but at the same time, like now they have quite a bit to lose, right? If, if they're up against whatever the consequence is, which isn't clearly defined through this, but I mean, if you're involving FBI and Department of Justice and possibly the Patriot Act and then investigation, um, it, could, it could wipe out some of these people. I mean, and, and where does it go? Where does that information go? So if someone is, has been at a board meeting and they've gotten to almost like a shouting match, let's say, um, but, you know, never to a point where they left their seat or got physical or were making threats or, 
swearing, um, then could it be that there's an investigation open? And if there is an investigation open, and that does that person's employer somehow find out about it? Does there's there some record that's created on that? What's the consequence? It's you know we're not talking about a, a municipality misdemeanor for bullying at this point. You know we're talking about the a potential to read this letter and to not think the potential for an FBI investigation into a behavior at a board meeting or a sporting event or you know whatever it is at school related um what is what is the consequence of that what's the sunset of that what lingers below the surface that you don't know when do you become aware of that what other information is being gathered um you know does does it impact your ability to buy a house does it imp- i mean as we come into these i mean these are all questions that seem a little out there until you realize they're not really that out there, right? I mean, um, it's it's these are huge steps, um, very quickly. Like it's, you know, these are two huge, you know, one from a, um, you know, the it, um, an advocacy organization which has no political power other than lobbying, right? <laughs> they don't write policy and, you know, they can, they can contribute through lobbying, but I mean, it's an advocacy organization, the national school board, you know, your state organizations, which are also, you know, lobbying at your state level, but it's, it's pretty scary. Um, So we need to, we need to study school board meetings to ensure, again, school boards are properly noticing what they're covering in their meetings, because sometimes they'll cover things um, that weren't on the agenda, which is illegal. You can't do that. It's not a properly noticed meeting. So for example, if you post a meeting and say, we're going to discuss um, our COVID mitigation protocol, including masks or no mask, like that has to be on your agenda and has to be worded that way. You can't get to, you know, into your open meeting agenda and suddenly just start talking about mask and people in the audience are like, well, I didn't know this was going to be covered. And if it was, like, I wanted time then to talk at the start, like when the input session was. And um, so you're seeing that, that that's happening. Um, and you're also seeing that the some districts aren't following procedures. They have a lot of turnover in their board, so they don't follow what's called Robert's Rules and Orders of how to conduct meetings. Um, I know that firsthand because people will contact me and they'll say, here's the link. Like, watch this board meeting or watch this part at the 51 minute mark and was this done correctly? And it's like, so not to, that is a, that's a part on the school. And there, there's also this, this thing of, I'm, I think there can be a change in the way some of these board meetings are conducted. It's a weird feel when you have a, the board on an elevated platform up on a stage, they're all this positionality. um, They're, they're, you know, kind of distanced and I, I think there's, you know, we go into the psychology of, of the meeting place and I researched some of this, you know, like when you're holding um, what are going to be likely spirited or contentious meetings, uh, what are some strategies? And it's to have a lot of visuals up to remind people why they're there. So like visuals of kids in schools versus like just the, the brown walls and the auditorium um, that you're restating, you know, we're trying to get to this, this outcome where everybody can be here and safely 
contribute to our school or whatever you, that you're having input from kids. Uh, how often do we have students present at board meetings? Like we don't really, we don't do that too. Um, so I think there are, there are ways to, to conduct this and to be very civil about it. You know, when I interviewed Larry Lawton, America's biggest jewel thief. So one of the things Larry Lawton told me about prison, right? So he's like, you know, prison is incredibly dangerous. He's, you know, um, it, if you you could be, you know, stabbed and obviously killed, things things go down at prison. But he said one thing at prison, federal prison, you know, Atlanta, um, just Georgia. He said, if you bumped into somebody, even, you know, they, they're in for life, right? You bump into somebody, you'd say, excuse me. There was always this level of a basic um, um, kind of uh, dignity is as far as, or respect, I should say, you know, that there was always that level of respect. And he said, it's, it's interesting to, to juxtapose that over to right now that, you know, we don't do that. Um, whether again, it's it's just people in an audience or even as board members for like thanking somebody for input or, you know, again, I go back to this FDR stuff. There was a lot to that. There were intense studies on the impact of FDR when he knew people um, didn't like him and they were they were in t terrible times during the depression. He of, of saying, write me, tell me what's going on, right? And he would address, you know, some of the letters and stuff like that. But, but imagine, like, I'm trying to imagine if a, a school district as a pilot, you know, or a couple of districts did this type of input. And then they had, you know, like a, even a postcard that was sent back out to the person, you know, so it's a pre-fill thing, maybe if it's on, on the web, but usually, you know, or you say, just send it in because it's kind of cathartic process to write. And you sent back a postcard saying, Thank you for your letter, date it, whatever. You know, I, I've read it as the the superintendent or the board of education. You know, we we've read this letter. Thank you for for taking the time. Like that would be extremely powerful and meaningful. I don't think anybody does it. Like nobody does it. But there's a reason FDR did that. There was a reason we had the Committee for National Morale formed in 1941 at the start of the war. There's a reason why we had the Road for Victory campaign and things like this. Um, and we, we're just, it's like, we, for, we forget or the people who know about these things are gone. So like part of this, when I was talking about the COVID a week ago, and I said, you know, um, you know, the, to have a board meeting about COVID and mask and things like that, and to bring in the, the doctors and have the doctors tell you, you know, why you should mask is, I thought it was completely the wrong approach. Like if you want to be if you want to educate people about the environment, it's it's bringing in environmental specialists of saying, if we're going to test, you know, we could test for a virus on a hard service or in the air, and here's how we would mitigate it. Like those are the people I'd want to know what they could do and, and how they could test. Because what if hypothetically you had a control group that was wearing a mask in, in schools and group that wasn't? was the aerosol different? Like the, this, this is where the, you know, the, the environmental people could, could tell you. And, you know, maybe there's something else. Like should everybody, if it is masking, like should it, should a school provide a mask to all staff and all students? So they know it's the same grade of mask. Like it's the same inter-rated reliability. It's not one kid with a bandana, you know, and another kid with the same mask that they wore 
for the last 310 days. I mean, so sometimes it's, you got to think about who you want to help you convey the, the message. There's this, I talked to my superintendent in my, my superintendent class. And, you know, I said, have, have you ever thought about, uh, you know, cause it, recently, right. With, with meetings that are going to be more, um, spirited, I'm not going to say necessarily contentious, but spirited meetings, whether to go mass, not mass curriculum, things like that. Have you consulted with anyone who's a specialist on setting up environments for those types of, um, things because they exist. Like there are, are organizations, pri there are private groups out there that you can contract with. And a lot of school districts do this for like public relations type things. Uh, if they're trying to get a referendum passed or whatever, they're they're hiring like a company to help them with messaging. But um, but I brought it up and, and I actually have one superintendent who's following up with a company that they contract with on their messaging that goes home with parents and, and other things. Um, and I said, you know, ask them, like, if if they would provide, at least you can do a request for a proposal, would you provide um, a research-based strategy of, like, how we could hold our meetings that would decrease the likelihood of um, contentious meetings, I guess, right? So maybe part of that is is it's, you know, it's a wider area or you're rotating it across. You're not, you know, buildings, so you're having it in some different sites to ownership of the buildings. Is it the visuals that are present? Is it providing water? Um, is it clearly telling people what to expect throughout the meeting? And there's a lot of people who go to board meetings and they're not really sure what to expect, right? They don't know the sequence and the, and the time limits. And, or if you change the visuals or, or, or things on the timing, like should you, you know, put almost a shot clock up? <laughs> uh, you know, this stuff is crazy, right? except it's crazy until someone starts to do it and other people do it. And I, when I presented on PBS and I had to, I had an hour and like I had to end on the hour. That was it because that was the show. It was done then, you know, live. And, you know, they, they got everything going on there, you know, shades of different colors come up to let you know, 10 minutes, five minutes and the shot clock and all of that stuff, you know, which you never see when you're watching on TV, but, but part of it is, I think it's a courtesy to members, also people presenting um, and, and saying, or or even like to have the board of education, uh, the chair of the board, you know, say, here's what's on our agenda, right? Which has been posted. So we're, I'm just going to review the things we're going to be going through. Um, and then, yeah. I mean, what if you did have, because, because right, people are reading through their things and whatever, and all of a sudden it's like their mic goes dead or there's like, Rrr. I mean, which is just, uh, in that sense, the message that, okay, we are giving you your time, but we don't care what you're saying. Or we just, you know, when the clock runs out, it's done. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've think there's this whole other area to look at with, with those things. And I actually said, um, I remember being an administrator and getting out in the audience before the meeting started, before the board meeting started, and just talking with people, and not necessarily people I knew. Um, and it wasn't school board stuff, right? You can't talk about agenda stuff while you're talking to the audience, but mingling a little bit with the audience of, you know, just the chit chat, the weather, um, and 
whatever, you know, some contemporary things, thanking people for being there, uh, making, you know, pen and paper available for people if they, they didn't have it and, you know, just things like that. But um, again, I think there's this, this part of messaging and it's, it's, there are also like, there's a company ISS 24 seven, they work with the NFL and a lot of major sporting events on how to, um, how to do messaging for in, in a dense crowd population, you know, like what if you have um, a sporting event and an NCAA or NFL event, and there's a, there's a horrific call and the team is going to lose the game. Like there are colors that are displayed on scoreboards. There's messaging, there's other things. There's this whole sequence of things that happen to try to deflate that that no one ever hears about until you, and I interviewed ISS 24 seven, like on the third episode of the show, like years ago, but there are things. Um, and again, I, I'm not trying to make excuses for, for people who have acted egregiously because in any context, I don't want someone doing that. You know, I don't want someone pushing anyone down in front of me at Walmart or taking a swing at a, someone at the register or, you know, um, but again, I think the national school board associations uh, document, it certainly wasn't informed by their membership. It certainly uh, paints uh, parents and people contributing community members in a very negative light. And then to have Merrick Garland come out with a memo to the department of justice saying, Hey, let's in the next 30 days, let's involve all of these groups, tribal groups and, um, and let's figure out what's going on and then we'll give guidance um, and then also sprinkle in the Patriot Act in there and also this guidance on how to um, acquire and preserve evidence like that is this is it's just not the way things should be done. Right. This doesn't make sense to you or I or you or me or you or us, I guess. Um, so let's go back to the the chat. We have our good friend. Um, Andrew visuals don't work. Look at communism, a hammer and a sickle is your symbol and they are laziest people. Um, wow. So yes, I think the thing is you have to sharpen the sickle a lot. Um, so visuals are, so the studies on, on, on visuals. And I wrote about that in the velocity of information is if you go heavy with visuals, when you're communicating like 80, 20, and we know this for referendums that pass, like a city wants to build, um, you know, a new senior center or community center, whatever it is. And you look, you analyze where these things pass, whether it's a wealthy community or not wealthy community. The ones that pass are very heavy on visuals because people want to see what this likely is going to look like when it's done versus, you know, um, where, so this was, there was a study where they were doing churches, like church renovations and things like this. And, and, you know, so the diocese that would send out a letter, which would be three pages long of like why you should do this and the church is that old and whatever. And there's no picture of the church on it. And it's like, well, and it, then you have the diocese that said, Hey, you know, the church is 120 years old. And then it's like, here's the pictures of the things which are you know, bad, the concrete cracking here and the picture of the furnace and whatever, whatever. And then here are five pictures of what we 
artist rendition of what it's going to look like you know, once we get all this work done that you're going to give us you know money for. Um, people are like, yeah, like I want to see that. I want to get on board with that. So, um, and this is also just not, if it's not the way people operate. Um, it'd be interesting, you know, now that you brought that up, um, Gormonger, I mean, it, Andrew with visuals, it, I wonder if there would be like a visual component that would go with this, right? Um, for example, what is, what would you consider a letter to a board to be, um, where it would cross the line into possibly, I guess, as they said, domestic terrorism. What would be, show us some examples. Um, there is a, a book and I recommend it in one of my classes. Uh, um, I can't come up with the name of it right now. Um, but it is basically um, how to determine if student writing is a threat or not, right? Like what if you have a, Stephen King, who's writing some graphic story as a high schooler, like when is that a threat and when is it not? Um, I, uh, I don't have the book available, but um, let me let me do that um, threat writing. Just it's I feel bad because I don't, I don't know. I don't know this. All right. Well, I guess it's too. It's in. It's in one of my syllabus, but your syllabi. Um, so are you going to have examples? Are you going to have, so you can can make some determination of, oh, okay, this is what the, this is what Garland had in mind or the Department of Justice. Like, can we see some of these? Um, are you going to be able to see video clips, right, for training for a school board of, okay, like, you know, people, pretending. And, you know, I went through a lot of that in police. Um, when I was, when I was doing um, the interventions with the police coming into schools for safety um, in events, you know, if a student had made a threatening comment or if there was a weapon or something like that, but the, the different like threatening comments, like working with the police, like, the, you know, how do we, what, it, giving examples to people. So this whole thing of like, yeah, trying to get some inter-reliability is going to be, be pretty interesting. Um, also, so I'll go back to the National School Board Association, and I don't want to let them off the hook quite yet. So the National School Board Association, again, it's, a, it's the national group that then all of the states, their school board associations pay to be a part of this group, and then all of the districts typically pay to be part of the state group. So the NSBA.org, National School Board Association. So if you go there to home about, they also have corporate and nonprofit sponsorship. So never forget that these organizations, that this organization included right off of their webpage, has this heading, corporate and nonprofit sponsorship. Working with the NSBA offers access to over 90,000 school board members and 13,000 school districts around the country with a combined buying power of more than $400 billion. That's their lead-off sentence. What does it convey? It conveys to you, hey, if you have, if, if you, if you have the right amount of money, right, and, and the, I guess the right service or product, we can... Again, NSB offers access to 
offers you access to over 90,000 school board members and 13,000 school districts around the country. Those districts have a combined buying power of more than $400 billion of your product could be part of that. Hint, hint. Um, you know, like, that doesn't sit well with me. That, um, it, it doesn't. It It is, what's the vetting process on this? You know, when I, when I go to conferences or I would look at conferences, the first, first thing I do is I page to the back and I'm like, who are the sponsors? Who are the sponsors? Who are the vendors? Because they're paying for the conference. It's not you. It's not you with your, you know, the $300 to attend or something like that. Um, it's the vendors. I ran conferences, big conferences. I know what the vendors would pay to have a table at a conference, or if you gave them a breakout session to talk about their product. Um, so I understand how this works. That's a very disturbing first sentence and the way that it's worded, the NSB offers access to over 90,000 school board members with a buying power right of $400 billion. So, so as, so as we look at this, like who, who are those, who are those people? I mean, I, it wouldn't be hard, right. To bring up the annual conference here and check who the, the vendors are. Um, I'm kind of going through that right now. Um, so I have to click through this a little bit. Hey, there's submission guidelines. Do you think they'd let me some, do you think they'd let me present? It's in San Diego. Um, I'm guessing they wouldn't. So unless we want to, <laughs> if, if you can make it happen, I will go out there and I will gladly present, but I, I just have a, a sense this isn't going to, uh, this isn't going to happen for me. So let's go over Hey, John Steele um, from Washington state. Bob Uecker did a good job at diffusing bad calls in major league. It just, I've been outside, Ricky Mays, or Ricky Vaughn, The Wild Thing. Um, yeah, so I was I watched that movie um, just a couple days ago because it was filmed at Milwaukee County Stadium uh, where I had seen quite a few games, and it was supposed to be Cleveland Municipal Stadium, but that wasn't available at the time. So they filmed it at uh, Milwaukee County Stadium. Um, and some of the Milwaukee stuff is still visible if you know where to look, like the WTMJ TV stuff and signage and things like that. But yeah, the, back when they had the monochrome <laughs> jumbotron um, out in the outfield. So, um, so let's go. Let's go over um, to uh, Gormonger. Um, so yeah, Doc, your example last week about the blacklight box made it made to demonstrate effectiveness of hand washing was a perfect example of what you just said. So, all right. It, so that example that Gordon was talking about, um, a, a high school was um, high school shop class, right? They wanted to um, help elementary kids with learning how to how long they should wash their hands and then like how rigorously and you know around the cuticles stuff like that. So what they what they did is this high school shop class is they basically made a, a plywood box with a um a plexiglass opening on the top so you could look inside of of the box and then they had a black light in in inside black light and a battery this holding a battery operated 
And kids then could could put their hands in the wash your hands, right? Like a second grader, like, okay, go in and you know, wash your hands and use plenty of soap and sing the alphabet song, and when you're done, come out. And then they would they would be in like a low light area. Um, so they could put their hands in there and it would kind of seal up around, you know, their, their hands and they would flip the light on and the kids could like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. I've got like, I still have some germs on my, my hands. Like you could see it under, under the black light stuff. So then they would go and then they, you know, wash more. And, but it was, then it was, they actually knew what the objective was for hand washing and, and yeah, it is like right by the fingertips. So, you know, I need to, to get more soap and, and to do that. That probably cost what, <laughs> you know, 25 bucks to make that. And it's like you could use that box probably for forever. And, and in the kids thought it was the most amazing thing, you know, the second, third graders. It reminds me of when I was um, when I was a kid. And I think uh, the dentist had 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 me chew some tablets. And then you look and you'd see like where the, the plaque was on your teeth and kind of you got to do a better job like brushing. You can see this, but. But, you know, it's this thing that didn't take, that wasn't hard to do. And this, the high school and the kids, and it got integrated reliability. Kids knew what to expect. And the whole thing with hand washing was frequently hand increased hand washing. Kids didn't get sick as much. And we knew the kids were staying in school more. Our attendance was better. Um, we were, you know, pretty, pretty strong relational statistics of saying that was likely due to hand washing. If anything, the hand washing wasn't drawing, it wasn't a drawback. Um so checking out here, um, four four hundred is that trillion John Steele in taxpayer money. So, yeah, um, I'll get you out next summer. Hopefully, I'll get you out next summer, John Steele. So to Andrew, um, twenty twenty four. Um, I am on John. I'm on the board, and we expect a volunteer. Oh, so you're talking about your. Your where you live, I think the condo association, right? Is that it that they expect you to go out and to shovel at certain times? So, um, so yeah, I don't know. So, so you know, let me let me kind of recap why I, you know why I wanted to do this show. What I want you to, to come away with this, and please put comments below um, if you can do the. Um, if you can subscribe and smash the like button, right? Whenever I listen to a podcast and they start off that, I'm like, oh, come on. But it's like, you know, I'm hoping to get the show to a thousand subscribers and actually having the podcast was substantial in, um, so what's substantial in me being able to write, um, oh, here we go. Sorry. I have the comments thing kind of messed up here. Let's go. Um, sorry, I didn't bring this up earlier, but the fact that I had the podcast and had, you know, 150 ish episodes was important to people I would interview for the book because they wanted to know that I had, I had done work in this area, um, of kind of, you know, chaos and crisis and it was credibility, right? So as they, as I could lead them back to some shows and say, you know, here's a show that I did on whatever, or it had this many views. Um, because people would say, I only have so much time to give and, you know, I want to know that you're vested in this, that you're going to be, you know, following through on the book and yeah, okay. I can see on the podcast also like that you represent intellectual 
thinking or if you have me on as a guest, you know, some of the people in the book were a guest on the show, you know, Nikolai Razavayu and Larry Lawton, Morgan Rogue, for example, were all guests on the podcast. So the more robust the podcast looks with comments to get the algorithms going down below, um, subscribers, likes, um, it does help me with um, not only the podcast, obviously, but with with my book and promoting, you know, the velocity of information as that gets to gets to be out there. We get it out to more people who really need to know what's going on. Um, how many, so I go to the right one here. So, um, bacon road, how many watch hours do you have? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I know how many views I have, which is like 30,000, which I guess doesn't sound like a lot. Although, you know, the, the show has been, uh, ticking up, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a show until a year ago that had a thousand views. And now I've had a, a few of them, you know, that have crested, you know, over a thousand views. And, um, so I'd have to go in on show hours. Like if I had my content out there, so everything is released here, it's released on Podbean iTunes. So there's well over 250 hours of content that people from start to finish. And, you know, some of those early episodes I had, um, a lady on who talked about her um, search and rescue dog, Sierra. So she was giving that process, right? Of like, hey, if you get the call, like, here's how you, here's how I have to leave, I leave work and then I get the information on where to go and here's what the dog needs. And, you know, the dog can do this and, or and the, and the dog can't do this. And um, having um, the interview with Dave Hyde, who's been blind since birth and worked in a prison for part of his life. And, you know, I have the interview with Dave Hyde and, and he's telling me, yeah, during a fire drill, like he had to get himself and his guide dog or service dog, or I guess that guide dog, right? Out of, out of the prison. And he had to climb up a ladder. So he had to like carry the dog partway up this ladder, then onto a different level. And I mean, this is just amazing. And, and, um, and listening to, to people, interviewing Larry Lawton, um, you know, he's just, Dave, the, you're always looking down at people's feet, right? You know, if if they're if their feet are pointed in a certain direction, like a group of people, it's you're probably a minute away from something going down, and they're all heading like in that way. Or if someone is is wearing boots when they should be wearing sandals, and um, so yeah, just just crazy, uh, crazy stuff. So um, the episode needs to be targeted at parents with kids in school. This episode, um, yeah, I hope so, um, and that's how I will. I will try to get it out with um, my, what is it? The meta tags, right? Where I'll put in parents and teachers and then, you know, um, tag it on, on social media. The thing is, John, <laughs> so, um, you know, there are people who don't want this information to be widely distributed. Very, just very overtly. Like the, the National School Board Association certainly doesn't want me talking about this in the way that I am talking about it. Um, I, I know in just the school safety community, um, anyone who's involved in capacity of a vendor doesn't want this out. So I'm looking at this, I'm like, I don't, I don't see a big vendor component of this um, other than you could have. So I, 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 I ran this by um, somebody in the IT industry and I said, what would be the vendor angle on this? So vendors, so if I'm a vendor, how could I approach a school 
because of these two things and maybe get the school to sign a contract with me for X amount of money. So, and, and, and he said, here's the deal. Uh, you go to a school district and you say, um, I will give you the technology. I'm going to set this all up. I will archive everything uh, for you and, and put it together. I will do all of that. So you have all of these records available um, and it'll cost you $350 a board meeting to, to do that, or if there's something else. And um, that's the angle that will come in. And there's this other part, and I don't know, um, it's freedom of information request. So freedom of information request, my God, like this is, I asked the question of an attorney and um, just a few days ago, specific to this, what does freedom of information request look like if someone says, I want the board meeting, um, the re recorded board meeting, usually, you know, board meetings recorded, the archives put up, but what if they say, I, I want the, um, uh, freedom of information. I, I want the letters that were sent in to the board of education or the district administrator, or I want to have access to the video of people in the audience or the audience at a football game. Um, or like, where do you go with that? Cause you have to respond. You have 15 days to respond and there would have to be a compelling reason. But what if they said, you know, they, their, their reason was they, uh, had questions uh, about whether people were mask compliant. Let's say that's the thing. So they, they want to have this, this video. So like, you're going to have to go back and forth with your legal. And then there's a subset where you, you dump all of these records into, and then it's basically attorneys, but entry level attorneys, which get paid like $25 an hour to go through and make sure that there isn't, uh, there aren't things that need to be redacted or removed from, from that, um, that aren't, that would be privileged information or proprietal information of the, the district or something. So, um, but so any, anyway, it's like, what, what is freedom of information look like under this new world? Um, and also when you do a freedom of information request, you know, are too many or a target, are, are those going to be um, perceived as interfering with the function of schools? So this, these are all just strange things that there aren't questions for, um, or there are questions, there aren't answers for. So Robert Kuzland, Robert uh, coming over, don't want it distributed, is putting it mildly. So yeah, um, I was explicitly, not more than once, um, but I was explicitly told <laughs> I was not welcome to a conference um, because of when I wrote School of Airs, um, my you know position and PBS and whatever against um, hyper-realistic intruder drills. And I also had signed, get this, I signed a contract to keynote at a, a large um, event in a different state and there was a like 24 hour or 48 hour grace. There was a period where either party could um, kill the contract. And within 24 hours, the head of the committee contacted me and said, we have to cancel the contract. And I said, okay, 
And I'm like, can you tell me why? And they were kind of hesitant. And, and then I just said, is it because of my position um, on hyper-realistic drills? And I said, I know who you have coming in for vendors and sponsors. I can tell from your site here. And they said, yes, it's a, it's a conflict for us um, to have you present and then people leave the hall and come out to vendors, which are going to tell them something different than what you told them. Um, so we can't have you here. So really the message is, right, um, we're not going to inform our membership and the vendors are probably paying us $20,000 or more for that spot. Again, I, I did this, so I know. Um, versus like paying me to come down and present and, and give this information. Like, you know, people, that's why I wrote School of Airs. And I wrote it because there are people that take that book and it's an easement to the truth and discussions. And it is a book that has held and gained traction um, in school community. And once we get into philosophy of information, I think it's also going to, um, there will be distinct pieces people can pull out of that. It's not a school safety book, but there are very intellectual pieces of how to interface with people and systems during times of chaos. John still knows what I'm talking about um, with that. So I'll just say it like, it'll be what? <laughs> so when I got to a section in a book, um, I was, John and I were going back and, and um, analyzing some of the, the different ways that the book could go and, and different examples of phases of chaos, comorbid, extended, short-term things like this. Um, and that's that's really good. That's the thing that this National School Board Association, they're not doing, right? They're not having those discussions. <laughs> they're, they're not. Um, so John Steele wrote, I am hoping local PTA members would find your expertise and honesty refreshing. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm pretty likable. That's so um, I am likable. The PBS stuff I've done has been extremely well received. So the two PBS presentations, 2013, 2019, have, have you know, made me an honest broker, right, I, in those discussions. Um, 2013 was following uh, Sandy Hook. So, you know, that presentation extremely needed to be, be dialed in and thoroughly researched and, and delivered appropriately. Um, and, and, you know, an updated 2019 version, which got into a, a, a lot of policy stuff, why school safety um, was the way it was because of either the presence or absence of strange policies at different levels and how, you know, vendors and, and legislators play into play into that. Um, so, yeah. Um, so Andrew wrote, laugh out loud. You got canceled because you don't want cops going into school and, and, and shoot blanks, which I did also with the cops. And I had a picture of that in school of, of airs. Um, I, I used to be a drill junkie. I absolutely love that. And the cops would, um, would bring me along for their other trainings, <laughs> like inside, you know, there's this big warehouse and then they had, a, they had a couple like houses set up inside of this warehouse. So you'd have to do entry into these houses, things like I probably wasn't supposed to be a part of, but you know, with my, being school administrator and stuff. Come on. And I got, I got to do a lot of pretty cool stuff. Um, but, but yeah, um, it's, and it's not police. It's not, um, it's not the police officers, the SROs, like they, they typically get it. It's um, 
explicitly, like when I said, you know, the hyper-realistic drills, there are companies that contract to schools and make huge money off of doing that. Um, and those are, those are the instances where, you know, uh, for example, like Andrew, like you wrote, I mean, so yeah, the, the local police department or county or whatever, you know, they're not paying the vendors here at a, at a conference for a booth out front. You know, they might be there if they're invited, right. But they're not paying to have a table. But if you have a vendor who's selling intruder simulation services, right. For, you know, large sums of money that hasn't been tested, institutional review board tested, things like this, and or you know, are selling door locks. I think I talked to, at some point. I talked about Assembly Bill Forty Four. I testified on and said, you know, to have a door lock on a, on a classroom, it needs to be universal. Like that's code, right? You need to. People come into a classroom, either turn the handle or you push handle down. You can't have some system now where suddenly you have to enter, you know, three digits and hold something, a button for four seconds and then push the door handle. And that stuff was like all up for debate. Some, some, not some states actually went that way. And why did they go that way? Well, because, you know, it's vendors. I mean, it's people that show up at these these massive conferences and are paying huge sums to get access. I'm not saying any particular conference clearly here. But um, so, yeah, so as a truth broker, I'm not in demand at those events. As a truth broker, though, I'll, I'll, I get up in the morning um, and, you know, one of the coolest one of the coolest things is opening up the inbox and it's somebody from Jacksonville, Florida or wherever, you know, Ohio or Reno. Right. And they're saying, Hey, saw you on PBS because my PBS specials cycle through saw you on PBS and wanted to say, thank you for doing this. Or like, here's really like this part or I have like a follow-up question. What I'm not getting out of all of those, you know, in the last what seven eight years, um, I I don't get um, I don't get people who are like, you're, "This is horrible. You're horrible." I mean, it's it's fine, right? You can have a different opinion, but that's not the audience. I mean, I get emails from people in different countries who say, "I'm on a school board in whatever," you know, it's part of Canada, and this has helped me to have this discussion or to understand how this goes on and. Um, so I'm like, I'm, I'm doing good work. I know I'm doing good work because of, you know, I, I print, I have, a, I don't print those off anymore. I, I save them over to a file. I'm like, it's, that's the, it's kind of the impetus of, um, you know, when I, when I talk about this and saying, you know, what I'm saying isn't falling um, out into silence. Like people get this and it is, it, it really is meaningful because people will say like, I thought I was the only one who had this, position or this wasn't making sense to me and no one was talking about it until like you, you brought this up and kind of picked apart, you know, the fact that, Oh, you, some schools do exempt students with disabilities from school safety drills. And, and my school has asked that for, you know, my child, it's like, no, you know, I'm not going to do that. Like that's the way we should be doing things. So, so yeah, it, uh, it totally, um, <laughs> I guess, you know, wrapping up here, you know, by doing a presentation like this, anybody that listens to it, it, it gets you right away. You're, war, you're aware of this National School Board Association letter to Joe Biden. 
and I'll have it linked out in the blog post. Um, six pages, but you're aware that it happened September 29th because did, did you see it on the news? Did you see it on ABC News? Did David Muir start out with it? Breaking news tonight. And it's National School Board Association, six-page letter. I didn't see it. So I didn't see it in my local news um, and didn't see it. Uh, anything here about the October 4th uh, Garland letter? I saw it on social media. Um, didn't see it in the paper. Again, didn't see it in, in media. And I, I get these things because I'm, I'm involved in so many of these listservs because of the courses that I teach. You know, this is all, this all comes up. But it's like, no. So make be aware of that thing and then make you uh, aware that if you go to a school board meeting and suddenly it's changed, you're like, whoa, like I never had to come in and give ID before. I never had, I was, there's signage that, you know, things are being recorded or this other stuff or, um, you know, it just, I, you'll know what is prompting that. And then also the, to get out ahead of this, like the state organizations, 18 of them saying, we don't want this. We didn't ask for this. We've got ways that we're handling this. You are taking this and um, and, and really representing what uh, the exceptions versus what is largely happening out there. And, and uh, you know, so uh, John wrote episode idea, interview a vendor or dissect a vendor's marketing material as, it, as to why it is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, that would be great to do. I I don't know if an act, right an active vendor would know. <laughs> it's a. I mean, it's not going to be a Joe Rogan moment where I'm going to get somebody on and and be able to to kind of you know get them to say what's well, social proof, right? If we can sell enough of these bollards and and say, hey, the the district next to you have bollards in front of their schools, so people don't run in cars through the front door and run over people. So like you should have them. Um, I, I think a good episode would be if I could get somebody from ISS 24-7 back on. They do, you know, security for the Super Bowl and NFL, stuff like that. Because they only provide, honestly, their system is so um, dialed in. Like, one of the things they told me when I did the interview, I'm sure it's upgraded since then, is I said, Dave, like, for our app that we have, we have to make sure an 80-year-old usher who's worked that venue for 50 years kid knows how to use the app, right? Like they only come in and they volunteer their time for this. So it's all picture based. And there's like four things, medical event, um, you know, rowdy behavior person can't find their seater. I mean, there's like four things and the way that they, they streamline and process data. Um, and then one of the things ISS 24 seven did is they hold a conference every year and they invite their users down and the conferences just tell us what worked and what didn't. Okay, like you use this product or like three of you use this product from us. Um, would you present on it and just tell people what worked and how you train people, what didn't? And like, whoa. Um, so that is cool. So maybe I can get that happening, but I don't know. Um, I will. I will definitely... It's right. Like I couldn't get anybody from, I'm sure, NSBA. I mean, our, the state organization where I'm at, they wouldn't, they they wouldn't contact me. They won't, <laughs> they won't engage with me to present and inform at their conferences. So I'm pretty sure, like, why would they come on and, and do some statement? But, um, but again, I, I was, a, I, I ran conferences where three to five hundred people attended, and I built them from scratch. 
Um, so I, I do have that really detailed side of, of the deals that get cut with vendors. And, and I, in the times that I was running those conferences, um, you know, I never brought anybody in that I felt didn't align to a best practice that was going to be um, the emphasis of that practice or of that conference. Um, but yeah, this is, I do, I do have one person in mind. Let me think this through and, and maybe if I could run this, um, you know, past that, that person, it's just, you know, it's so hard, right? If you bring anybody in, um, I don't want to be sued. <laughs> like that's the other part, right? You, you don't want anybody to, to feel that you're, you're misrepresenting their, their products or, you know, non-disclosure agreements. So as, as you see, like, I'm not using names of, of any of these companies right now because uh, they're very quick to do a cease and desist type letter. You know, one of the things in school of airs. So I had I have a school of airs right here. One of, one of the things that was really hard for post-secondary people to deal with um, let me find it because it is really good. Um, oh, chapter 16 called One More Don't, Professional Standards for Educational Leaders. So there are these standards out there through the, let me see where it is here. Um, all right. The National Policy Board for Educational Administration, Professional Standards for Educational Leaders. PSL. So it's a document da, 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 created by the Council of Chief State School Officers in 2015. What the hell does all this mean, right? So, but anyway, the PSEL was, you know, what schools were supposed to have for their standards. And as I wrote about in here, like one, one more don't, <laughs> right? In a book which is in hundreds of libraries now, this book, it's kind of cool. Like I just found out Burbank. Um, library added at Burbank, California. Um, like, I don't know, last couple of days. Like, it is, that's the thing. Like, the book now is gaining traction. Things kind of slowed down a little COVID, but now it's like really, really picking up in libraries. Um, so I went through and I'm like, this stuff was just all garbage. Like, it was, it's all fluffy statements. You know, like, people will, you know, students will experience growth and whatever. So I'm like, you know, I just said, so it's, the whole the whole thing the words safety violence security and threat did not appear in the document <laughs> so who are you serving when you put stuff together that's not actionable that has no baseline and basically it's just big gathering for people um so you know calling that out was was definitely going to sever the ability to publish um through a university press which not a big deal for me. I appreciate my publisher. I think it's my best option uh, for my work anyway. But, you know, I wasn't going to hold anything back, right? If I'm going to write, if I'm going to do these things, I'm going to be upfront. I'm going to give you my opinions. I'm going to tell you how, what they're based on. I'm going to try to explain things um, that if you're not close to this, it's not going to make as much sense to you. Like for me, like even being close to it, some of the stuff takes a while to scrutinize. Um, so, but yeah, so let's go over here. There's no doubt to the value of your contribution doc. Thank you, Sass. I appreciate that. Um, and there's a, a plus one from John Steele. So, so we have apparently 30 days. Uh, we should know by, uh, what November 4th 
from the Justice Department, that would be the, the deadline, um, they should have a plan of action of how they're going to give some guidance to schools on how to strategies for dealing with threats, but then also how to maintain records of evidence and then how to possibly um, engage different levels of enforcement. Those, I guess that's what we distill out of that. So um, it's, again, it seems like the, the states weren't informed on this. A lot of the states overtly came out and said, we don't want this. We believe this is counterproductive. Um, we're getting the FBI involved in these things. Um, the Patriot Act has been mentioned. So, I, I mean, I think there needs to be a massive walk back of this. Um, I, this is a significant threat to uh, people, especially people without uh, resources to come forward and to advocate and maybe more strongly advocate you know, not advocate in a way that's, that's um, threatening, but this is not the, I can, this is not the direction schools want this to go in. And again, what is it, what will it ultimately boil down to, right? What is the ultimate thing? Um, if they have, so they come out and they say, yeah, you can record these board meetings or you can take a scan or, or, of these letters, threatening letters that are sent in, or if there's other stuff, or um, and you can submit it through a direct port portal to the an FBI branch. Because remember, like Bellevue, Washington had the direct portal where you could send pictures of your neighbors if they had five people or more gathered. By the way, like my question there is, whatever happened to all of the pictures that were submitted, and what if they were not authentic? Right? What or or what if they were taken? Yeah, that picture, but it was a year old, and all the metadata was wiped off of it, so it, it got sent in. Are those public record? I mean, so like we already have this weird erosion of trust that went on with that, but um, but yeah, this th this thing and, and how does this impact board policy? So that's the class I currently teach. You know, we talk about board policy. So now, does this alter your board policy? Are you going to um, and how might it alter? Um, I don't. I don't know. I mean, one of the things it could alter is that I guess if you were going to record people on premises, you could do that as a policy, and then underneath it, you'd have um, procedural steps of like you do that through signage and through some communication on the website, or actually at the event, there would be some statement that would be made if there's like a piece. I don't know. I mean, but these. What I'm saying isn't crazy. Like I will, I will be able to find in 60 days a district that is doing this, or somebody will point it out to me. Um, somebody will listen to the show, or you know, whatever, or just I'll be able to find it, and they'll they'll point it out and be boom right here. Um, so hey, um, Bacon had a job interview in in Burbank. Uh, so yeah, um, Burbank was very nice. They sent me an email. And they said, um, Dr. Proden, we were in, became aware of your book. Well, so my book, it's, it's in catalogs through the publisher to libraries and the library groups and stuff like that. But, and, um, we wanted to let you know that we, we bought it and just let you know, we appreciate that you wrote it. And so just a short, short email, um, which, you know, 
I just thought it was cool. Like they didn't have to do that. Like most libraries don't kind of reach out to the to the author, but um, but that was that was just a cool it was just a cool touch. Like Burbank, I appreciated that. Like that was just a nice that was a nice thing to do. Um, so yeah, John is uh, John is saying it will lower the lower it, it will result in lower civic engagement and further diminish social trust. Ultimately, right. <laughs> so trying to not say that too early in this discussion, but that's it, right? It's if, you know, you convey as positionality. Uh, it was interesting. I was talking with a, a legal team at a university who a very prominent legal university contacted me, which I'll talk about on some show once this becomes, once they get done with their work. And they said, you're an expert in this one specific area that we are researching policy on. Um, doesn't necessarily have to do with like school violence, something in the school arena though. And, um, but any, anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> so let's just forget about it. But, um, but what, you're, what John is saying is, is absolutely right. Oh, it's positionality. So, so this, they were saying, you know, these, there's a certain practices that are set up in schools to separate parents from their rights during some circumstances and students. And I'm like, yeah, and there's actually, here's some policies that are out there that, that do that. And they kind of circumvent the law and stuff like that. And they were amazed. They're like, you talked about it and no one else has. Like, we haven't found anything. Like we've, we've done a lit review on this, like a team of lawyers at a prominent university. And they're like, there's nothing out there. Even we found you that you've, you've written about this and stuff like that. And, I, and this very specific area of policy. And I'm like, yep. I said, it is, um, I said, and it's crazy. So they're taking it on. They're, they're writing this, what's called a legal note, which then a legal note, um, per my interpretation, then could be something that's referenced for future law cases. So they're analyzing, they're not part of a case, but they're analyzing some piece of the law and saying, here's, here's a way it's been interpreted, put in practice, which no longer matches the law. So oh, it's been manipulated. Now it should be revisited. Um, so it was pretty cool. Like, I'm like, whoa, like it's, it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, the, so lower civic engagement, you know, people understanding. And this is, it's just such a shame um, because all of the stuff right in the last two years that have happened with uh, public trust and as Andrew, uh, Andrew gets into social trust, um, it's, it's just, right, things have been toggled on and off so long. And when you finally have some people who are coming to school board meetings and asking questions and, you know, they're, they're showing up and they're, they're trying to be informed of the decisions that are being made or try to give, give input or it's fine to try to steer those decisions. You, you have this response that is way over the top um, and, and trying to shut people out of the process, right? Of course, everybody would counter me. That's been, you know, Merrick would say to me or the National Scooper Association, you know, that Dr. Proden isn't, you know, he's incorrectly interpreting this and that's not what we said, but actually I quoted what you said and you just have to go to the responses from the individual states to, to find out that the states are like, we're not on board with this. So, and I can tell you, um, 
you know, as, as I talk to school administrators, um, the face-to-face -face discussions, you know, through my classes, like they're not on board with this either. Um, this isn't the way that you build uh, trust. So Andrew is saying social trust is dead to me, kind of somewhat to me too, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, that I take vitamins and low-dose aspirin, you're saying, because doctor sales pills are useless. I do the opposite. Um, I, I still take my aspirin. My it, it was weird. The, I I bought I had on my shopping list. I bought um I was out, so I bought more low dose aspirin. And then it was that day that came out, you know, that saying, Hey, like don't take this anymore. And apparently then they're trying to say, Well, it had been out for a while, don't take this, but I don't remember that. And if so, like why why make this big why like make this big deal about it? Like why when everything has been strained in the media, in in public health. Why do you want to take this on? Who the hell's idea is this to suddenly tell people don't take aspirin? And, and you know, so I, I just, I don't know. Aspirin works for me. Yeah, I take vitamins. You know, I've always been a big fan of vitamin C as somebody who like cycles, um, you know, vitamin C and um, vitamin D. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like those it hasn't done me wrong so far, but are we going to get to a point too where we're going to see aspirin <laughs> taken and put behind the counter or something like that? I mean, it's just like all, you're right. Like the, the whole the trust thing is like really, really iffy. Um, yeah, the whole the whole so, social trust, and that's where like so writing and this isn't this this is the book and it isn't the book at the same time. Um, so. This is done. This has been submitted. That's not the cover of the book, but this is 255 pages. And the publisher is now typesetting it and working with their marketing team. And actually, I got to see some of the early cover designs last week. So there's some pr pretty cool stuff going on. Um, and how the, you know, again, marketing and, but the velocity of information is a truth broker. I mean, it, you want to talk, you want to understand how, Individuals, society, governments, function, position, propaganda during chaos, um, how it's in here. Uh, do you want to know what you can do to recognize that and to work around it and to get ahead of the pack? It's in here. Like it is in 471 endnotes. I mean, 10 in-depth interviews, like tons and tons of hours researching um it is a phenomenal book and you know again it's truth broker i'm not i'm not there's nothing this book is selling itself it's not selling you the course that goes with it or a keynote <laughs> or an extra door lock um it's not uh selling you a surveillance uh camera or a tape recorder or any of that it is selling you knowledge and you know it's one of those things so I had reviewers obviously work with me throughout the whole process because I said, I, I want to make sure that this written in 20, 2021, you know, the, it doesn't tilt toward a conspiracy theory sense as you're reading this, um, yet that it addresses obviously what's contemporary happening in society. And a, a couple of my reviewers said, you know what, there's a Samus dot aspect to this, like meaning, so like back in the Soviet Union, um, 70s and 80s, you'd get these kind of underground newspapers and they were like 80% true, 20% false. 
but they were more accurate than the state narrative, which would just tell you everything was fine and <laughs> also would, you know, give these perspectives of his Russian history, which weren't accurate. Um, but, you know, one of them said to me, Dave, I'm not sure that book would be publishable in another two years. I'm not sure um, a, a, that a, a publishing house would get behind it. And, um, you know, just we on the trajectory we're at. I mean, think where we, at, we were at two years ago. Like, you know, two years ago, COVID, nobody was thinking about COVID, a civil unrest, riots and, and protest, and, and you know, a, a, what, $4 trillion worth of spending and, and stimulus checks and eviction, moratorium evictions. I mean, that's all been in less than two years. And... Now, um, and plus, you know, there's memo coming out from uh, Merrick and the school board association and, you know, people uh, threatening school boards and possibly invoking parts of the Patriot Act. Like, holy smokes. Um, so, like, where, where do we go, like, two years from now? So, it's kind of this timing thing, too, is I, I worked extremely quickly to... Um, to get the book done. It was 16 months and, you know, I, I really hammered to go through it and, and also with the publisher, like we're, we're, we're going pretty full tilt uh, with this. It'll be out in um, hard copy, paperback, ebook, then also audio. Um, audio will be staggered. That will be the last release. And that's um, so the publisher can, can get into the print markets initially but but yeah we went all in and and like the press releases are already done the ap press releases for the book have all been written there's three separate pre press releases i mean like the stuff that's already gone in on the marketing side when this does come out in february it will just be this boom this big launch and then this like repeated kind of hitting on it because well it's a it's a sentinel work i'm backed actually by my university <laughs> not fiscally or anything like that, but like with the work, they're really behind this work, a scholarly work by one of their faculty. So, so that's pretty exciting to, uh, to have this one, but it's also one of these things where I'm not sure it, I, I, I don't believe it has a, um, a shelf life. I think it ages extremely well. Uh, school of errors ran into the issue, right? Like you re release a school safety book. And then like five months later, you know, everybody's remote learning, but this book is, um, you know, I, I wrote about uh, Chernobyl and Nikolai Razvayu, the Soviet cyclist, his experience uh, having to race an hour away from Chernobyl the next day. You know, interviewing Larry Lawton. And I mean, people, the things that are in here, um, and then also giving you kind of this trajectory of like where things are likely to go based if we kind of take these things. And then just how to get yourself ahead of the pack. Um, how to not necessarily get your, yourself someplace better, but someplace different. <laughs> And I, I've used that more and more when I talk to people right now. I, I say, um, I can't guarantee to you, um, you know, that, that these books will necessarily get you in a better place because of all of what's happening around you, but it will get you in a different place. It'll get you out of that, this, this languishing or this quagmire or, or this polluted media, social media stuff that we're in. And it will land you into a place where they're still thinking and debate and, um, you know, there, there's intelligence, right? Um, so it's accuracy over speed. And write about that too, um, accuracy over speed. You know, one of the uh, uh, amazing stat in the book, um, you know, uh, research team was looking at how, 
help people, um, if you ask them a question, so there, 30% of people will, if they have their phone with them, will immediately go to the phone to search the question. And these are all questions people should know, <laughs> right? Like, a, what temperature does water freeze at? Or, you know, um, what year was America founded? Or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, these are things that are that should be pre-wrote knowledge. And it's just reflex. 30% of the time, people go to their phones and it increases. That's the thing that they're writing about too. Like, it's called this kind of offloading. So you are trusting other people to give you information and and when do, what if those sources go down i also wrote about you know in 2020 i think uh um Myanmar and and belarus like you know the government shut their internet down for weeks at a time there are 29 countries that happen in so you know if the knowledge isn't in this hard copy book right or the the mp3 that you or the audible or whatever you download um you know when it comes out um, that's why I'm trying to do this. Like I'm really passionate of getting, getting these things out there and getting this knowledge out there. Uh, so let's, um, quick drive. Mictibus. Hello, Mictibus. Um, yeah, thanks for uh, catching the replay. I'll, I'll release this tomorrow on Podbean and then it's leveled, you know, audio for those of you who just want to do the audio while you're doing something else, um, in the background. So Gormonger, how can, how can you be an informed citizen when half info out there is censored? Read the book. <laughs> yeah, actually, I specifically address that in the velocity of information. Um, and it, yeah, so it, it will give you very clear guidance on how to do that. And there's something in it, you know, I'm going to break down the book once it releases. So I'll, I'll kind of do, it's it has seven parts, but it's 55 chapters. So I'm not going to do like 55 episodes, but I'll, I'll do like each part. So like seven parts of the book, books, 255 pages. And, I, and I'll, I'll walk you through like the process I went through, what's in the book. And as you said, like, how do you find out what's out there? We'll tell you what I did. I interviewed Juan Brown on the podcast. And some of you, you know, you know Juan Brown. You've talked about Juan Brown. And um, Juan Brown is a pilot with American Airlines. And he's also flown, like, tankers, those air tankers to, to dump water or forest fire stuff. So Juan is a couple of years older than I am. He lives near Oroville, California, Northern California, Sacramento area. And so Juan um, started, he has a, he also has a 1946 uh, private, uh, a plane, personal plane. So he started to fly around the Orville Dam in 2017 when the news was saying, "Hey, like the the <laughs> the chute where the 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 water discharges, like have it fell apart, it, it and it collapsed. Concrete's gone. It's starting to erode back. And if this like dam fails, like the whole area is screwed. Like we have five feet of water for Sacramento and all these towns going down would just be this is a huge reservoir. It's massive. So. So, but you know, the news covers it in like a minute and there's a couple articles, but Juan's like, I live by this thing. So he gets up in his plane and he starts to fly and he take, he's recording what's going on. And I have some of those videos, like just a five minute video. Like he did this whole series. He started to learn how much water was coming in and out of the dam. He learned of the damage. He went to the site and he asked if he could um, go in and talk to some of the workers and stuff. And they invited him, him in 
you know, just, I suppose this older guy and, and they knew who he was because he had this YouTube channel and get this one. So you're talking about how to get information, right? That's what he did. And then he became the broker. He was sharing this channel out that, um, that episode of the Orville dam got a half million views. He would go to meetings with the department of water in California, 2017, we're talking about the dam and, the, and rebuilding the dam and stuff like that. And people would ask the engineers questions. And I know this because I talked to one of the engineers um, and they said, yeah, they would ask questions and then they would turn and say, I want to know what Juan thinks about this or what did Juan, what did you see when you were up there? Or, you know, and, and Juan would then, you know, answer questions. He didn't usurp his role. You know, everybody understood Juan wasn't an engineer. I mean, he's a pilot, but he was, he was close to the information. He had seen it from the start to the finish. He could see how things were going. He was more than the news in Sacramento covering this for 90 seconds. Someone who, you know, could just get close enough that they could stand in front of the chain link fence and say, I'm here at Orville dam. And, you know, someone comes out and gives them a little bit of numbers or they, whatever. And, you know, one, one was the guy who stepped up and basically was, informing millions of people of whether they should, you know, get out of town or not. And keeping, I think, honesty in the reporting and transparency process. He was forcing, I guess, the the reporters to give the due diligence to that. So it's an amazing story. And and so I interviewed Juan a few times um, and, you know, wrote a whole chapter about Juan in the book. Um, I also, you know, talked with one of the engineers yeah, what was the impact of Juan? And he was like, Juan, Juan was the honest broker of this, right? I mean, and it was the fact that the media started to use Juan to get access to the site. Like a, a reporter went in and the only reason they let him up there was because he was with Juan and Juan had vetted the reporter. So I think, you know, when you say like, how do you, how do you get information? There's ways to do that. And I also talk about this member check network. You get, you know, can get five people involved in it. I did it. I wrote about my process. Joe Dolio has done it at a, at a higher level than I've done it. I wrote about his process. I interviewed Joe several times. Um, you're going to, when you read this, you're going to hear about people I worked with, not worked with, I, I, I was informed with throughout um, COVID, you know, when everything was shutting down, you know, Brian in the Bronx, Chuck Mack in Pittsburgh, you know, and, and figure out what the hell's going on. And, and the fact that we don't understand how to do this face validity. And it's pretty easy if you know how to do it, but you're never taught it. The media is not going to teach you because they want you addicted to the media. Right. And it's so this book is so empowering. Like it's had just tremendous reviews. Um, it's been peer reviewed. It's been numerous edits. I mean, numerous custom graphics that were built just for this book that I designed with a graphic designer to get some of these concepts across. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's like nothing you'll, you'll have read. Um, one of the reviewers said it's kind of like a Malcolm Gladwell work where you just like totally immerse yourself in research and pull everything from all these different fields and then like put it in. And my publisher my, I was over count on my words. I was only allotted 62,000 words and I got the book down to 67,000 when I submitted it. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to make additional cuts. Although the book is really tight at that point. And my publisher, um, after doing the first read of it said, do not, do not touch anything. 
Like, of course, we'll go through the proof process, you know, checking endnote citations, formatting, but like, do not cut a word from this. This is phenomenal. We're fast tracking this. And that's not the experience I had with School of Air. So I got to come back and then trim that down a little bit and whatever. But I mean, I was expecting and, and I knew it was a solid work and the due diligence I put into it. And to have that from the publisher, and publisher has to make money off of this, right? Like you're working with a private publisher. Um, you know, that's, it, there's, there are many opportunities a publisher can just say, no, it didn't turn out the way, you know, it, and you're done, you know, and the, you know, you're, it's under contract and all that, but I mean, it's, it's, or you have to change this or whatever. I mean, and so there, there is this high standard too of, of you have to make this private practice, um, quality product, right? Cause I'm not writing a romance novel, I'm not writing a Western. I mean, this is to write engaging nonfiction about something in an area with these 10 interviews and it's kind of this parable type format. It was just, it just it's just great. And then to have like the editor, you know, or the publishing house say, yeah, whoa, not a word. We're going to, we'll, we'll a lot. We're going to give you more pages in the book, whatever you submitted us, everything, the visuals, the graphics, it's all going in. We're not changing anything. Um, so it goes through three rounds of proofs. I'll get the first proof in a couple of weeks. That's usually where they'll say like, check this citation or whatever. And, or look at the way we laid this out left, right. Like, is, is this okay? Or do you want to change it? And then also the proof process, they get me um, the artwork. So I started to see the very early artwork for the cover and, you know, we'll, so we'll narrow in and then marketing has to fit in with, with that. But um, so, yeah. It's cool. I mean, there's like a whole team that's uh, that's working with me. So, John Steele says we need to get Doc on Joe Rogan. He has uh, school age kids. <laughs> wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be fascinating to get on Joe Rogan? Because um, I would, uh, God, I would obviously do it. Um, I think it would be it would especially when the second book is done. But to come in and and to have a discussion with Joe Rogan and Joe just saying like how how does school boards how does this work when school boards make these decisions and. And I think it'd be great. So get out there and, uh, and yeah, send if any, you know, Joe Rogan, right. <laughs> but I, I would, I would love to do that. Um, yeah. Um, who knows? I, you know, when I, I did velocity of information, I had, um, so let's see here. So dams will be the first targets in world war three. Yeah, yikes! And Orville Dam right now is like at a is a record low. I don't even think they're running the the power plant that is a part of it. They've had to shut that down. So um, amazing. So um, yeah, this is um, where was I going with? Oh, so yeah, velocity of information. Um, it's just it's I, I'm thrilled. I'm absolutely ecstatic about about this book, um, and. I, I don't know. Nothing else, nothing else to say about that. So if you haven't, um, so let me see here. There's a message from uh, John Steele. Love the show. As always got to take care. Keep up the good fight. Thanks buddy. Yeah. Hit that like button. Thank you. Um, Mictibus. Yeah. If you can do that. Um, and yeah, by the way, um, so my book school of Airs, which I showed school, <laughs> school safety, like rethinking school safety in America. So, you can get it off of Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, it has, it has been stuck at 43 reviews for a long time. 
So if you've read the book and you are compelled to uh, to give a review, and it's been all five stars so far, so that's that's great. But um, you know, I'm always checking. I'm like, what? Um, who's going to be the 44th review? Like, what is that going to? What is that going to happen? Um, there was a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist. Uh, on the East Coast, who was the 43rd review, um, just an am- amazing, powerful review. I think called it like the first honest discussion about the school safety drill trauma. And I mean, it was amazing. Um, but yeah, so if you have read it, if you have an interest in it, um, and not necessarily too that you have to go out and buy, buy the book, but, um, but yeah, um, it's available in a lot of libraries too. And even, even if you contact your local library, this helps me. If you contact your local library and say, um, if you don't carry this book, would you add it to your collection? This is an important book for your patrons. Library, I mean, people have done that and my book has then appeared in their library. So, you know, that that's, that's something else to consider because, you know, I can't go and, and do that but to other libraries. But if there's a lot, you know, if your local library and, and the book's not there, um, they can they can add it to their collection. So that's that's been a cool thing. Uh, so we've got the National School Board Association is uh, kind of having this this issue now with their, their state membership, 18 groups dropping out. Um, so we've lost alignment there. Suddenly, uh, the Department of Justice is saying in 30 days or on November 4th, we're going to have some guidance on on their role in educating schools about um, threats toward board members. And again, we have this National Threat Assessment Center this in 2000 to 2007. I don't know why that didn't come into play with this. Like, But that's kind of a common theme in School of Errors is saying there's all of these things that <laughs> exist, like Delaware here with... Uh, National School Board Association, Delaware School Board saying, we've already done this. Like we've, we've had these meetings, we've given guidance, we've given trainings, and we've, we've kind of coached people how to navigate um, more spirited meetings or even contentious meetings. Um, it doesn't get shared. Like people just don't understand that exists. They, they, don't, they don't know that those things are out there. And they just go ahead and they do stupid, stupid things here. Not only stupid, like this, this just has so much potential for setting things back, uh, school board relations with communities, right? Um, and if you're a school board, I mean, like it's now even your school board is disconnected from your federal representation, like your federal lobbying, which is the NSBA, like you really have, can't trust there <laughs> because, you know, I always, I always uh, wonder these things. I'll go out sometimes late at night and walk on a track close by me, which, uh, so if I'm ever missing and it's late at night, someone's listening to the show and they know how to get me. Although I run pretty fast at night. Um, but, um, but yeah, I'll sit and, uh, and I said, but I'll be walking around. I'll be like, how in the hell did, um, did this not get flagged at some level? Like when this idea came up, right. <laughs> when the national school board association is writing the six page letter, when there's a statement in there of, you know, that there's, they're paralleling to some extent, or they use the word domestic terrorist within this letter. I mean, how does, how does it not get proofed by 10 people before that letter actually gets sent for one? Like, how does, 
how does somebody not read this and say, Ooh, yeah. Like, um, everything I highlighted here, like, let's go back and revisit that. And, um, why do we have people on board with this? Like, can do the States know we're going to do this? I mean, how, as a school administrator, like the, I had to be so thorough with like a food allergy thing, like understanding with, before we did policy, like where we get all of our applesauce from and, and working with the cooks on how much they put on the plates and our system. So when a kid comes up and they get their lunch and they punch in their number, it would give an alert to the kitchen staff as they're preparing it that, oh, the student has an allergy or the student has type two diabetes or type one diabetes, type one diabetes. So like when you're preparing, so we had all these systems. I mean, they were all, and then when we had message, like when we're holding these meetings and, and we want to put this into our newsletter or something like have people read it. Like, where is that? This is, these are levels where there are a lot of people doing this, right. And getting paid big money from these organizations that are, that are being a part of this. How does that get through the filter? How does, how does, it's almost like, you know, unilaterally one person puts this together or I don't know, they kind of had fingerprints of a lawyer on it, but um, how in the hell does that get through? How does that get through without anybody saying, hey, you need to, um, yeah, we need to revisit this. This, the tone of this isn't right. Or like, let's have a, let's have some people sample this or whatever. And so I don't know. I see, I see more and more of that coming out of players, organizations that should know better before they, they communicate out. Um, Bacon said, um, you don't, you know, it's bad when you can't even get applesauce. Yeah. And on a, a side with that right now, um, some schools are, are unable to get food, their lunch programs, because their suppliers are declaring force majeure saying they can't get their supplies. So they can't, obviously then get them to the schools or you don't have drivers or, or they're saying we can get you some stuff, not the rest. So that is also, as we talk about it, like food and type one diabetes policies are like, if I'm a school district, I have made sure that the school district ordered for the year, the can goods stuff. So you're not changing it out month to month because every time you do that, you have to reset your carb counts and your sugar counts and all of that. It's, 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 it's riskier with kids with diabetes when you do that. So if you're going to order canned things, you order enough for the entire nine months. Um, but schools don't do that in cases because they're not thinking that way. They're thinking we can get the cheapest thing that's on the market at that time. Like we can order what's going to expire in 50 days. So we'll, we'll get it in now. So, um, and let's see here. Uh, Gormonger said, I have two local libraries. I'll try to get School of Errors requested to you. And Velocity of Information sounds like a must-have. Thank you, Gormonger. Um, yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, I appreciate that. School of Errors, um, yeah, it did come through a traditional publisher. So when libraries uh, bring it up, it, it typically shows in what's called, um, um, I don't know, WorldCat or there's some live. So it, it's more difficult, for example, if you were to self-publish to to get into a library, although like self-publishing probably would have sold more books overall for me, but, um, but kind of being, you know, more of that university route using a traditional publisher anchored me into a large library population, which is what I was, what I wanted in addition to making the book available to, to other people. 
Um, yeah, and velocity of information, um, I, I worked out a, a pretty, um, a great deal with how we're going to do the audio version. So that's going to be very accessible to libraries because a lot of times um, contracts for audio versions are kind of prohibitive for libraries because like if the book sells for, I don't know, $15 on for audio, like if a, li a library then might have it. So if someone checks out for audio, it's $15 and the library's like, well, you know, like we don't have a budget to keep, three people check it out, that's $45. Like we don't have that budget. So I was able to work, there was a different way specifically with libraries in, in working to give a, it just as if they're buying the book, they get, you know, this license to access. And anyway, to accessibility, that was a big thing. I, I said repeatedly with my publisher after, you know, we hammered out the original contract and things, they said, ultimately, you know, down the road, um, I want the book to be accessible and I am certainly um, willing to prioritize accessible over that the book is generating money for me. Um, I, I, you know, it's it's like taking less, right, to to stay on a championship team. I said I, I want this book to be available to, to people at a very reasonable access point. And yes, I understand author-wise um, that that's you know probably not a, a good strategic move for me as an author, but. It, I believe it's an important work to be out there. I have other things that I do that will build off of this work that I want to talk about. I want this eventually to be a PBS presentation. Um, and, you know, so it's, yeah. Um, oh no, Fritos will lose revenue on Funyuns and Hot Cheetos with food stamps and maybe parents will have to actually pack lunches rather than that dreadful school <laughs> ravioli, so. Yeah, who knows? Who knows what? Uh, I don't, well, some schools are going remote, like in um, Alabama. A couple schools have moved to remote learning because they can't provide the meals, and so I'm like, I who would have thought that that we'd be at a point where schools couldn't source and now are going remote not because of COVID numbers, but because they can't access food for hot lunches. I just. I don't know. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of keep pace on that with my area districts too. When I'm meeting with my my school leaders and say, yeah, are you seeing anything or are they changing up your, your supplies? So, all right. So um, here's in Wisconsin. Well, I'm in Wisconsin, right? Thank you for the 18 thumbs up. I appreciate that greatly. Also, the last show I did, um, there were nine um, comments which was awesome, right? So anytime there are comments that helps the show um, gather attention, uh, this will be out tomorrow in um, audio format. And then I'll also have the, I'll have the blog uh, post on safetyphd.com, which is my, um, every show I've ever done is on safetyphd.com. And, <laughs> and, so I do a blog post for every show. So, and you'll find everyone in video and everyone in audio. You can go back and however, if you're interested or, or things like that. SafetyPhD.com was was uh, hacked back in September by like a pharma, <laughs> a discount pharma spam type site. So like if you brought up the, 
website in a Google search, it would just be like all of these pharma drugs. And I'm like, oh my God. Hey, it's Ryan Katsu Rivera. Oh my God. Um, this is an honor. Ryan, I was just listening uh, to you and Gavin. <laughs> Honestly, I had downloaded um, episodes on my thumb drive because it's a 90 minute drive to the university uh, where I in instruct on the weekends. And I listened, um, I always listen to you and, and uh, Gavin. So yeah, I just, I got a 90 minute dose and I got another 90 minute dose of you guys coming up. So, and Ryan, I would love to have you on the show, buddy. So um, yeah, um, I am, I don't know if, leave me a message or, or something to hear. Um, and I, I love when you're jamming out, like I'll tune into your, your jam sessions, but I appreciate, I appreciate that. Well, thank you. We have Ryan Katsu Rivera, ladies and gentlemen in the house. Um, so yeah, so many talents, including a get off my, get off my lawn. And, uh, uh, one of, one of the funniest times, uh, Ryan, you were doing, um, your Gavin McGinnis, <laughs> <laughs> um, impression and yeah, the the mustache on it. I thought it was bad. I th thought it was the most hilarious thing in the world. And uh, oh my god, it was it was hilarious. So it was absolutely hilarious. So um, yeah, but yeah, I appreciate that. So hey, Ryan, um, thanks and yeah, get a hold of me. God dang it, here. Um, there it is. God, no, that's not it. Um, Typing. I got the microphone. So there, there it is. So that's the, yeah, that's the way anybody. But Ryan, I would love, absolutely love, seriously, to have you on on the show. Like a long time, I've been wanting to uh, to ask you that. So that's totally cool. Um, thank you, Mictibus. Um, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Bacon, and uh, man, Andrew uh, Gormonger. Yeah, let's uh, uh, John Steele. Uh, Joe Dolio, just everybody for showing up here and getting the good word out there, having some good conversation, trying to make sense of what in the world is going on um, with all this crazy, <laughs> this crazy government memos and you got 30 days and I'm like 30 days. So yeah. Um, so this is like the episode I did with Bacon and Nick Shulaner the night when America burned down and uh, we did this marathon episode of what, like, what was it? Bacon, like four hours, you know, like I'm I, I, like scanner apps on and I'm listening to like, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, state street is you know on fire. And, and then uh, Nick Shulander who was on the show in, uh, in Washington. Um, it sounded like someone was kicking down his door and then he went off air for a while. And then I don't know what happened. Uh, it was they took away his shoe and we haven't heard from him since, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was the episode where, uh, where Nick Shulander got taken out. Um, but yeah, those were some scary times, man. And again, like, so we're a year past that <laughs> trying to mend and relationships and government and, and, uh, you know, the constituents and giving input. And we come out with these memos saying, um, yeah, if you, if you, you know, say this or or, you know, do these behaviors at a, at a board meeting, um, you know, we might bring in the Department of Justice and, you know, stuff like that. So, I don't know. It's just it's absolutely crazy. So, and, um, yeah, just everybody who's been here, appreciate it. And honestly, I mean, and Ryan Katsu Rivera, I'm just saying, you probably, if you don't know who he is, uh, you know, just, just look up Ryan um, and look at, for example, Get Off My Lawn with uh, Gavin McInnes. 
Ryan is brilliant and he's 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 hilarious. Um comedic gem. Um and I I'm I just I, honestly I download um and I, I listen to his, his stuff when I do the long drives uh because it's it, it it just it's what I want my mind to be filled up with. It's just great. The guy is so talented. And ever if you see him um streaming sometimes like just you know uh with his guitar it's really cool like I'll, I'll have that on as i'm as i'm doing stuff he'll do some jam sessions so it's, it's really cool so yeah this um this is awesome um i haven't heard from nick shoelander and agency yeah nick shoelander who was a big fan of dismore's iga by the way um and was keeping us surprised of what was in stock and out of stock and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, Nick kind of Nick kind of vanished. <laughs> I don't know, man. Um, you know, I'm hoping everything is good for him because he's a great guy. I had him on the show. Um, and, but uh, but yes, yeah, so Nick's Nick's kind of missing. Bacon, something like that. I think it was three and a half hours. John Steele was on the show too. Yeah, that that was a crazy episode. <laughs> that was that was the episode as it was developing. Um, you just didn't know. You didn't know um, what was going to come out next on the news. Um, it was it was frightening time. We were covering it though. We had this this you know multi state um, you know tuned into different scanners and, and Bacon was running around uh, Chaz trying to figure out what was going on and and uh, yeah like. <laughs> Like it was good. I'm glad I did it. Like I, I am just like school of not school, just like velocity of information, like just immerse in and document what was going on in the moment instead of like waiting for things to be done and then forensically trying to figure out what happened. Looking back hindsight, um, Seth too, too many, um, pretty sure he was abducted. Last I saw him, he was trying to contact the, <laughs> so yeah, as, as, uh, his, uh, ham radio, right. Trying to get a hold of the international space station. He was trying to do that once. I remember him talking about that. Or, or you can apparently ping the ISS. Um, I haven't heard from Shulaner. He's not even. Oh no! So anyway, Shulaner. So I think if you type in Shulaner plus Dismore's IGA, like you'd, a lot of hits would come up. You'd be like, oh my god, there are thirty-five. Uh, thirty. The th first thirty-five hits here are just like it's all like Dismore's. He's all into Dismore's IGA like commercials right now. He's kind of like their their ad man, right? Like he's. Everything is just built around him. Um, so, yeah, it's he's, he's the face of Dismore's IGA. So I, I suppose, you know, it keeps him busy. But, uh, but yeah. So, everybody, I am uh, I'm going to – now, tomorrow is supposed to be 74 and sunny and with a warm southerly breeze. And that will be October 19th here in Wisconsin, which means I will not <laughs> – I will not be down here because it's going to rain the next uh, couple days after that and then be like in the fifties and anytime you get above 70 here in Wisconsin in October, like you have to take advantage of that. So I will save, you know, wait till the, the evening and then I'll, I'll kind of get all of this plugged through and, and make sure at least by Wednesday, like everything will be out here with the show. And I do have a guest lined up for episode 156. Um, she is an attorney. Um, I'm not going to give her name yet because she has to, um, make sure with her firm where she works that they're okay with her being on the, the show. Um, so we had a very lengthy discussion, put together an outline and she would talk about what is it, what is like, what happens when a parent 
files a lawsuit against the school district and says, you um, did not properly take, take proper steps to mitigate COVID and now my child has coronavirus, which are those lawsuits are being filed, especially in my state right now. So what happens then from the school side and what happens from the parent side? And then also what are things that we don't think about? Some weird legal angles to this that might play out. And she had a couple of those things I never knew, even though I teach like legal issue courses, like she's an attorney, she's brilliant. And, and she posed this additional perspective of how this could play out. And I'm like, that is awesome. Like, would you talk to, and she's fun and you absolutely love, um, you know, love inter- listening to her and, and, and she's, she's so awesome. So I'm thrilled. I don't have a, a green light yet, but um, if she does say that it's okay, she was thinking next week, probably not Monday, but next week would work. I would get out notice ahead of time for her to be on the show. That's when I think you're really going to appreciate of having a lawyer say, yeah, like you're, you're seeing this on the news and what's happening and back and forth. Here's what that actually looks like. Um, and then also kind of how to, how to protect yourself <laughs> and some of that crossfire. So, all right. So this is, this is our FBI um, episode, which means like if it gets FBI uh, flagged too many times. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure this one is going through, it's being dumped into a file right now and someone's been assigned to listen to this. <laughs> and again, I'm only reading what has been already produced. Um, and you know, things like that. So, all right. Well, everybody, um, keep it safe out there. Thank you for your support. And again, I'm hoping that the upcoming podcast will focus in on, um, with our guest and she'll be a lot of fun. You can banter with her and, and she will, she's familiar with StreamYard. Um, so that'll, that'll all go, um, that'll all go well. And then, yeah, if you can, if, you, if you're not subbed to the channel, if you can sub up to the channel or get friends to sub up to the channel, um, you know, when you're doing your shows, you know, bacon and, you know, I, I, the other night, yeah, like 20, 20 people on your, you know, were following on your chat on your show. And, and I appreciate, you know, just, Hey, by the way, like, friend of the show here, if you can go over and make sure you're also subbed there, because it is once I, if I can get to that thousand threshold, um, I think that that opens up more opportunities like with guests. That's honestly one of the, the questions. If I, if I do ask some people, um, if you don't, if I don't have a thousand, they'll sometimes say no, like they don't want to be on the show. Um, so that's where I'm, I'm kind of building up to, but I think we can get there. I think we can. Um, yeah. And, and, um, Bacon Road, I should get Morgan back. I should, uh, Morgan, um, is now in Alaska and has snow. <laughs> so I, per her like recent podcast, um, a couple inches of snow up there, but it's been cold. Like they've had dustings of snow and it would be fascinating to, uh, yeah. What, what that looks like for her. I think they, they, have to park their vehicle something like a half mile away from where their cabin is. And then they just go through the woods to get to the cabin. And, and yeah, um, they'd be, I talked to Morgan when they were in the Southern U S and now of course, um, you know, that, that all changed pretty, pretty rapidly a couple months ago. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I think that, that would be, that would be awesome. Uh, Morgan's always a, a terrific, um, a terrific guest and, and with her own show, uh, more, um, 
ro um, what it rogue preparedness, right? Rogue preparedness. Morgan Rogue at the I just spelled preparedness wrong. So um, <laughs> so I feel bad about that. Well, I'm type. I I have no line of sight here for the keys. So I I sense there's a keyboard underneath me, but I have no I have no idea. Um, this this setup um, that is a pitfall of of the way this this setup is. So not not significant enough where I would actually go in and and uh, and mess with it. But yeah, robe preparedness, right? Prepared P R uh, P R E P E R, right? I'm so sad that I just did that. Um, but rogue preparedness, Morgan Rogue. All right, everybody, um, take care. Look, uh, there it is. Uh, Bacon put the link down. Look for um, a big announcement for next week's show because I, I think I've got a guest. And remember, this show used to have guests. That, that was kind of the format. And then I, I I got out of that to kind of do like my solo shows for then I just for like ten months. I didn't do any shows, and a, a large part of that was related to the book. Um, <laughs> need to work on the book and also not do shows until the book was accepted um, for publication. But, um, but yeah, so I'll be lining up guests again. And I want to do some remote shows. I want to, um, I want to, I want to go out with my, uh, my zoom mic and uh, my camcorder and, and do a couple kind of uh, location shows. I don't have that all figured out yet. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure that aspect out, but I think like on face validity, some of the stuff that I did in the book that I never made public, all those videos are private. Um, I want to kind of talk through that process of how I did face validity back at the start of COVID and just like right now, what face validity would look like. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. So, all right. I guess, uh, or yeah, <laughs> can you imagine? So I never had Danny Woodburn on the show from Seinfeld, Miggy Abbott. So, you know, Danny's a friend and he had offered a few times to be on the show. And for some reason, well, the reason was he gifted the forward for for School of Air. So Danny Woodburn. So if you're not familiar with with Danny, that's Danny Woodburn. So Danny was uh, played Mickey Abbott on Seinfeld plus everything else that he's done. Danny's incredibly um, his writing skills are are beyond um it's i it's beyond what i can do i mean i'm a, i'm a very good writer uh he is extremely talented as as a writer so um but anyway danny is offered to be on the show and i've haven't had him on because i'm like oh i you gave me this <laughs> and i feel like it would i'd be i don't know i i I feel like he's already like gifted me too much to try to schedule a time out for him to be on a show. And, you know, he's a star on Seinfeld and these other things. And although like, it's not, he's offered. Right. So, um, but I, I, I want to make sure that I, I guess would really study and have questions set up for, uh, for Danny's. We would center on like, um, disability in Hollywood and access. Like he talked about all these crazy things. They wrote about him too in the forward when he was kind of getting his break in Hollywood and, and how if you're um, an actor, you know, with a disability it can, it can be extremely challenging. Even, even if you're auditioning for a part of that 
same disability, you know? So if you're a person who uses a wheelchair and, and that is the position in, in the movie or TV show that you're auditioning for, they might give it to somebody who isn't familiar. It do, doesn't use a wheelchair, but in the movie they will. So there's not authentic representation. So um, that's where we, Danny and I would, would have some discussions. He's done so much work in working toward authentic representation in Hollywood. Um, but yeah, for that one, then you guys got to gear up you, uh, on the side, all my monitors. Um, you guys are absolutely terrific, but, um, but yeah, he is, um, uh, he doesn't <laughs> have to reach me. Um, yeah. Episode with the, with the, with the skinny jeans. Um, oh my God. So, so yeah, I need, I need to, um, I should I should get a hold of Danny again. I need I need to set that. I need to at least um, have that conversation. Maybe closer to when the book comes out. Um, and I think that's that's appropriate because like you know, School of Errors he wrote the foreword for it and so velocity of information. Just to to maybe have him on closer to when that's there. I don't know. Um, so. He's he's a cool he's a cool dude. He is he is just a yeah. So yeah, if he offered, he believes in you. Yeah, and he offered a few times, and um, and I, I again, I didn't accept because I, um, I just felt he had given so much to me, and and I didn't I didn't um, want to, I guess, overstay that welcome if that makes any sense. Um, and but. It, really, I, I need to go back and make that connection with him and say, Hey, remember you, you offered and I, I want to take you up. And then it was a weird time too. Like, you know, it was, it was kind of throttling down the show um, because of stuff I needed to do with the book. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty darn cool. He's, he's an amazing guy. Just amazing. Um, yeah. So, and I should have, um, I should also invite Kevin Dalton on the show. Kevin Dalton wrote um, a back cover endorsement for, the velocity of information and he's running for mayor of Los Angeles. And, um, Kevin comes from like his background initially was like giving tours of like Hollywood stuff like that. And then, you know, he, he worked up and built this platform and he, and now running for, for mayor. He is a sharp guy. Holy smokes. Is he a sharp guy? And we had talked on uh, different occasions and, and I'm like, I just, and I was following some of his work and I'm like, I just think you're so dialed in. Like, I want you to write a cover endorsement. Like I'll get you the book and, and he is super busy. And then, you know, he had read through and he had certain chapters. He's like, this is spot on. Amazing. I love this. Thank you. And, and so he wrote this really uh, moving back cover endorsement, you know, back cover endorsements on that long three, four words, but I'm like, whoa. So that's too like finding these people, but Kevin Kevin Dalton is someone we're just going to hear a lot about going forward, especially into election year. It's really like just look at him, like holy smokes, like just a these people are just so dialed in. Um, I just I yeah, it, it's amazing. I also have um, I'll do this. I'll have um James David um, Dixon who also wrote a back cover endorsement, and I used um a number of his, his stories in Detroit. He's a reporter with the Detroit news. He also has a podcast, um, not a podcast, yeah, a Substack. stack. Um, 
uh, page where he he writes uh, short stories, kind of reflection on like things that are contemporary that are happening. And I really found his work to be intriguing. And he was, again, someone that I reached out to and said, you know, would you do this? Would you do the a back cover endorsement? So, yeah, just is it's cool. It's cool stuff. Um, the people you get in contact with. And I wrote about um, Carl the Barber. So Carl the Barber, easy to find online. Um, he kept cutting hair. He was 77 years old at the time in 2020 when Michigan shut down uh, barbershops. And he didn't shut down. He kept cutting hair. And he said, I'm, this, I'm making my stand. And the state levied all these fines against him and one for like, you know, keeping a comb in his pocket they find him for and stuff. So I, I was reading all these articles and he was posting on his blog post. So I wrote this whole chapter about Carl the Barber and the whole, and it's early in the book, um, early. And it's called, um, are you essential? Because right. Every one of us right now, as we listen to this, it's, um, are we essential? Hey, it's Atham. Atham is essential. So Atham. Wow. Love it. So yeah. Um, you know, and we we kind of forget about that. Are you are you essential? And now, actually, that are you essential question that all of us got hit up with in March of you know 2020. Now it's kind of are you essential? But the question is, are you fully vaccinated to X number of shots or not? So it's kind of this change of of essential. But Carl. Um, that's a, a powerful chapter at the start, the 77 year old man that the state is trying to break, <laughs> you know, like we will, you will not continue to cut hair and behind the scenes, like the police officers are, are telling him, you know, we support what you're doing, but of course, you know, we've got to padlock your door, but then he, you know, um, but it's, it's again, that I, I got a hold of him after the book was accepted. I didn't want to interview him because I didn't want to skew how the media was part. I want the media portrayal of him to come through in the book and his blog post. I, 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 there was a certain way I wrote that chapter and I didn't, and it was after it was all done and I got it to him. I contacted him and said, Hey, like I wrote this book and I, I centered this entire chapter on you. And he thought it was awesome. He's like, cool. And, and, um, and he's still, he's cutting hair and, and he's got this incredible nickname for a barber, which I can't share because he, he didn't want me to share it, but, um, but anyway, like Carl the Barber is a, a really moving s story. Like you'll get through that and you'll also kind of be like, whoa, I mean, here's a person that, you know, almost had their livelihood taken out. And then also you're, you're 77. I mean, so like is, is people, things are done where you don't have input. I mean, yeah, it was, it was just, uh, it's just crazy. So, um, so yeah, Atham. So um, I've been thinking about um, caving. So sometimes I have to, to get an update because Atham is a caver. And um, so we would talk on that. And I actually miss those talks. Like I want to know, like if you've been caving more often. <laughs> I remember I had Atham on the show and I asked him, I said, um, so in caves, like do you encounter a lot of snakes? And he said, no, that's a question that girls typically ask. <laughs> like, oh, you know, I was just wondering, like I said, I don't know, to me it seems like there'd be caves, you know, that would have a lot of snakes. But no, he said, it's not really, it's not part of the caving experience. You don't come across snakes. Um, but, but yeah, I, I was, I loved, um, 
uh, some of the, just the whole psychology of caving. And then, you know, one of the things Atham was talking about too is um, he said to prepare for caving, you, you, your awareness skills have to be honed. And one of the ways that the cavers would do that is they would, maybe you'd be out at a cafe or something and you would be watching people. And then suddenly you'd be like, what do you think the next thing is they're going to do? And you'd have to predict that based upon, you know, what was, and so again, you know, in a cave, you don't have, you only have so much around you that you can orient yourself with. So you're really soaking up those cues of what's happening and then trying to be predictive. So Atham is really good um, with, with that. It doesn't get talked about like schools don't talk about it. People don't talk about it, but like even those, you know, you, these things of these getting your situational awareness skills and that was great. I need to get them back on. I know a way to get more views. Get a woman from Nevada that works. <laughs> Their jobs were closed the longest. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, if I wouldn't. Well, first of all, <laughs> that would be an interesting interview, right? Um, which I'm not against doing. I mean, I'm uh, when I uh, when I was doing... Um, I had the opportunity to to write about um, people in the webcam industry in the book, and I chose not to. Um, and I chose I, I used a different story instead um, in that in that case. And it, it was the one with Aaron Sawyer and Redline VR and stuff like that. But um, but for this show, like that would be that would be a pretty interesting show. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, go a real question that needs to be asked now, not in the future. Are the people taking the positions of our state fed essential? Yeah. And, you know, the thing I struggle with, right, of being my age <laughs> and, you know, having a family and you know, responsibilities and, and things like that, which I'm not the only one, but, um, it's just I don't see people acting as in the best interest of the position or as good stewards. And I remember having this discussion with um, the priest in our parish about five, maybe five years ago, seven years ago. It was it was back during the Obama administration, and it I, it was the first time I had seen on TV somebody swear in. Um, I think it used the F word or whatever on social media or on TV in a cabinet level position. I'd never seen that before. And I, and I said to him, I said, that, that was a, a threshold for me that was crossed. Like I always assumed there would be that dignity and professionalism held up by our elected officials that you're not going to see them giving the finger to the camera or saying the F word or, stuff like that. I just, I never, I, I never thought I would see that. Right. Um, and now it's not only, it's pretty common. Like I, the only curse word in, in the entire velocity of information, the only curse word is S H hockey stick T is used once as a quote from one of the people in there. I mean, it's a, it's extremely clean, you know, like the PBS thing is all G rated and, but I mean, it's just a dignity of you don't need to swear and give a finger to convey 
Um, I don't know. So I guess as as you're saying, are, and, and are these people essential? I don't, and I don't think a lot of them are, right? I mean, government is much bigger than it was when I was uh, starting out in my career. Um, and it's not, things aren't better. <laughs> so I think your locus of control, like, you know, your local governments and states should have more control. I think it makes sense. I don't like the Department of Ed has only been around since 1979, U.S. Department of Ed. It's a cabinet position. And, you know, it was, it's not that old. What's it done? No Child Left Behind, you know, which has been a disaster. Um, nothing. Uh, I'd argue. I, I, I think the Department of Ed at a, at a national, at a federal level, it was ridiculous to bring in. That should, this, it was much better for states to have um, control over that and not, and not have the feds involved. But, um, Athlum, you've probably seen some wild caves. I've only splunked into an entry-level saltpeter mine, but the darkness and death moisture blew my mind. So, that's cool. I went with my family. We were out in uh, South Dakota, home of Aaron Clary. But this was uh, about three years ago, and we went through Wind Cave, uh, like an hour and 15-minute tour, or through the cave. And back then, when you did the tour, they would have you... Um, touch the shoulder of the person in front of you. And then you also had to say like head down or like step or something like there were all these directions because it, it wasn't like difficult. It was just like long and it's people who typically don't go through caves. <laughs> so, so, you know, they can't have anybody hitting their head and, and disrupting it or someone wiping it out on, on some steps or something. And, but I'm thinking, Oh God, I'm so glad we did that when we did. Cause you could, I mean, socially distanced and I don't even know if they give those tours anymore. Like, right. Or, or to do that with a mask on, I mean, that would suck. Like that would just totally be, and everybody used like the same railing. It was just like, you know, water pipe. Right. I mean, that they had put in there and it was well done, but I mean, it was like, how, how do you get back to that? Um, so it's one of these weird things too. Like I'll do a show on it and I'm thinking, you know, there, there's so much that has changed. Like I went to Disney with my kids before the virus. Like, what would it be like now? Like, um, and just other things like the, the just, just have changed. Um, bacon that's a legit question. And I had the other week wonder what the underground scene was like. Um, I haven't gone caving in a while says Atham too busy with school and work. And my fellow cavers are either too skittish oh, about COVID older crowd. See, yeah. Our schedules don't match. Yeah. See, that's the thing like with caving. I mean, how do you convince people to do a group caving experience experience? You know, are they all having to do a negative COVID test or, I mean, I don't, all these weird things. Don't tell that to Cappy. He'll just flip two birds instead of one. Yeah, Cappy. Um, <laughs> so it, it was about a, a month, month and a half ago. I had breakfast with him. He was back in Wisconsin. And it was, it was funny, you know, because when he gets back in the state, he'll usually get a hold of me and say, are you available for like, you know, breakfast, lunch, supper, whatever. And, and if I am, like, we definitely meet up. But one time he, it was it was a Sunday and he was like, you know, hey, like, you know, can you get together? And I'm like, yeah, not today. And like, and I'm like, dude, it's Mother's Day. Like, I can't, I wouldn't, I can't do that. Like, we got Mother's Day stuff going on here. He's like, oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize, you know. And, um, but so, 
yeah, that was, but yeah, the last time, uh, yeah, and I, I think I talked about this. Uh, we we had breakfast and he had this giant pancake, and he ate it where he cut a hole in the inside of the pancake, and then he continued to cut all the way out in a circular pattern until he ate the pancake. And I was just looking at him like I've never seen anybody do that. <laughs> I've never, I have never seen anybody eat a pancake that way. Um, so it's the Aaron Clary thing. So it's like in uh, Seinfeld, the episode where George like takes a Snickers and, and eats it with a fork and, you know, cause of a knife eats with a fork. I'm like, who the hell does that to a pancake? And I'm thinking, dude, like, you know, you get to, you get to leave here. You get to go back to South Dakota, but like people around here, like you gotta, there's a certain etiquette with the pancakes, not starting the middle. There's like, you I don't know what the hell you got going on there. Never seen that. Got to explain yourself. So there's it just didn't make any sense. But um, but it's funny though. It's just it was a quirky thing, you know. Whatever you pick it up as a kid, and then you just kind of carry it for it. But please dissolve the Department of Ed. Um, I'm with you, Sast. Um, I am not an advocate of the of the. Well, yeah, shouldn't say it, but in a, at the school safety side, Department of Ed has has not given guidance on mental health in schools. It was the 2015 mental health in schools bill, there was a chance to get it passed, which wasn't through the um, Department of Ed, but the Department of Ed then just like elated after that, didn't do anything. There's no funding that's organized from the Department of Ed. There's no scaffold. There's no, I talk about this on PBS, like the Department of Ed totally just leaves it to the states. The states then just defaulted down to the counties because the counties will usually fund with the schools. And, and yeah, there are some model grants, but um, and the Department of Ed just totally, you know, student loans and the whole post-secondary stuff. It just doesn't need to be done. I mean, it, it was it was supposed to be plenary at the states, state control over education. It worked well for a long time. Even the early um, forms of IDEA, Individuals with Disability Act, um, happened. I think it was 75. I teach on that. And, and the states were doing a, a good job getting um, that implemented. And, you know, the last time too, like if you, if you're a parent of a child with a disability, um, the last time the feds, Department of Ed reauthorized, reauthorized idea, this bill that um, the legislation for, for kids with disabilities in schools and, and services, that was 2004. Like they haven't reauthorized it um, in 17 years and there's nothing on the horizon. And since then, <laughs> like a lot's changed, right? Um, and what we know about students with autism and autism services and other health impaired and, and, and different medical conditions that, you know, kids are presenting in school that maybe some of these kids, um, you know, didn't survive years ago. Now they're surviving and in schools and there needs to be guidance and there needs to be funding. And they're just like, they just sit on their hands. So, you know, I always talk about in my classes, like, okay, when they reauthorize, like you need to testify and, Tell them what's going on in your schools and all this, and all these people with gray beards. And <laughs> by the time like that happens, I'm like, how does this not happen? How the hell are you not doing this? Um, which gets frustrating to me. I'm just ah, damn it. Um, I heard that Cappy eats uh, an ice cream by biting the bottom of the cone off inside the ice cream through a hole, and then biting. He probably does. Yeah, he, he probably is. Yeah, yeah. You almost have to do like a dry run right at them if you're if you're ever out eating anywhere. Um, and it was, it was a year ago, um, I, I had supper uh, with Cappy and Chad Elkins. And 
I've never seen anybody. It was a, it was a formal dinner, by the way. And I never have seen anybody eat as fast as Aaron ate. <laughs> so um, Chad and I are kind of like, you know, Aaron's just boom, food, done, gone. And then you know, he keeps talking. Just, Enjoy your food, buddy. You know, like taste buds. Uh, that's what they're there for. You know, just like take, take it in. But, you know, he's he's always running at kind of that high, that high throttle. There's just all these funny nuances, right? Um, but I'm like, I don't know. I've. I mean, he, he was, it was like he was competing for the Nathan's hot dog thing. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, this isn't a tryout. Like, you know, this is an expensive, expensive restaurant. So take your time here. Um, work had a mental health day flyer up, Gormonger, to wrote. Um, anybody think you could cite that as a reason to not get a mandate? I don't want the shot or I'm going to end it. Um, so... The mental health day, I need to allocate a show to that um, because it's it's starting to show up in schools where schools are allocating mental health days to students or mental health breaks. And I, the research definitely supports the breaks prevent breakdowns. I wrote about that in my, my book, Philosophy of Information, World War II, Dr. John Apple. But, um, but then also like... What does this look like for attendance? And what if you have a student who takes a break every day to a, a break room, right? Which is just kind of a chill area. But what if they do it for 30 minutes a day? How do you know the instruction they're not getting? Like what's the, they're kind of supplanting instruction with chill out time. So there, there's gotta be some way to get a handle on on that. So it's kind of new and I don't I don't know what that looks like from some schools are implementing it. And then I kind of ask these questions like, well, how do you know that that actually, um, <laughs> that's actually working? Like that it's not causing the student to be behind in another area and to have anxiety. I'm not saying it doesn't like, what do you do though? How do you measure this? Like, what's your, what are the parameters? And then it's people, people don't kind of, the, the, they understand those questions that are out there. No one's asked them. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm not your board of education, but just like, just help me to understand this. So and then they're like, look, then they take off and they run. Um, yeah. I have to <laughs> Kathy eats his, his steak. Well done. I don't, I don't know if it was well done. Um, so he had a hell of a time picking out what he wanted on his salad though. Like, I'm like, geez, dude, dude. Um, Bacon uh, did a brief stint as a biometric, uh, at a software company. Um, the stuff they're doing is scary. He got himself out of there. Mictibus, you did. Oh my God. Whoa. So Mictibus is saying I did a brief stint at a biometric software company. The stuff that they're doing is scary. Got myself out of there. Yikes. I imagine, right? <laughs> I mean, I just have to imagine when I had um on the sh on the show, um it was before Lee Jarvis, um, the copyright guy. Sorry, Lee. You're cool. Lee's a cool dude. So it's kind of updating me on copyright stuff, um, which is really cool. So by the way, like the picture, so I'm trying to do like the thumbnails. So they're all the same. Like they got the blue background, the picture that's professionally done for my new book and then like the little logo. So, so it's easier and the text is bigger. So I'm, tr I'm trying instead of to go with other things to get kind of a st more standard format and, more easy to see on that lead chart. So here, Carl Hopf. So when I had him on one, show 152, so Carl talked, 
a lot about working in these secure virus labs and how he'd have to go through. And he talked about it in the show, but we talked a lot, a lot about it outside of the show too. And you know how like you get done with work and it might take you an hour to go through different levels to be decontaminated to then exit work. And I'm like, holy smokes. Um, and he had one of the, he had one of the greatest, um, um, in the interview, he, 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 and I quote him in, I think in the book, um, he said, you know, if at the, at the start of coronavirus, when, you know, Walmart is putting arrows on floors and trying to get people spaced six feet apart and stuff like that, like, what if we would have seen, what, what would have, have meant if instead of that, in, in addition to that happening, when you walk in, they give you a mask and they give you gloves and they, you know, kind of take your temperature or whatever it would be. And then you'd go through the store with that, that they gave you. And then when you were done, they would have an area where you would get rid of it, like a sharps area, right? You'd get rid of the gloves and the mask. And that way they would ensure there's a certain standard of what's coming in for the equipment. And because, you know, he was saying, how do and he's right. I mean, how do you know when anybody wears a mask, what's going through it and what's not going through it? And I, I wrote about in the philosophy of information on Etsy, there was over a million masks. I did a search in July. You could get over a million masks and they're all fashion items, right? And Etsy does have right on their website, which I put in here too, that their uh, sellers can make no claims that these are medical grade, you know, that these are purely aesthetic. So the assumption is you'd wear these over um, a mask that would be medical grade, I guess. But, but I also looked and there were like all these that had rhinestones, like um, riveted to them and all these things. And I'm like, you know, those are all compromised, right? They're just, you have no idea. Like, is there any machine like this would be something that would be pretty cool to see in a TV show, right? To, to have people come into a place and then they breathe in and out through their mask. And then, you could tell through temperature, right? That could be maybe your your thing or some something that could observe aerosols or I don't know what you do, but, or you could say like, can you, would you mind if you took your, their mask off and you could spray some smoke type thing through here? But just to see what these things do, um, take 50 people who randomly come through a place and then are, or, you know, give them a different mask and say, and take this one and test it. You, you'd find you're all over the place, right? There's no reliability. So, that was something I wrote about. And then I also was saying, you know, if you would have seen that, right. And as Carl was saying, if we would have seen that at our big box stores or your grocery store, or you would have seen your mail carrier, your postal carrier, all gowned up gloves and a shield. And after they got done with you, you see them sanitizing their hands or UV light, like that would have been some serious stuff. So that's the kind of stuff like we were watching for kind of as a member check groups, was that happening? And it was like, no, it quickly got to be compliance theater, right? You know, there's, you can go on the internet and find people that had underwear as their mask and stuff like that. I mean, it was just as long as you had a face covering. So it's like, well, how effective is that? And then is it just face or is it coming in through your, your eyes or your hands on carton? But there were certain things I think if I would have, if I would have seen the postal carriers um, done up very visible kind of hazmat type garb. I mean, our, our, our postal carrier goes through our whole neighborhood, walks up to the homes, did it up, open the box, take the mail, put the mail back. So I didn't see it. Never happened. Not, not one thing changed. I don't, my carrier 
didn't wear gloves. Might have wore a mask. I don't know. I don't know if I wore a mask at the start, but might have wore a mask, but didn't wear gloves. So, you know, literally handling mail that I might have put out five minutes before they, they got there, right? So it was it's just keen observations as you go through it. And there's there's a whole bunch of those stories in here of like, oh, or like the time, you know, the time things did start to show up, you know, when somebody in the network got the essential papers from their employer um, saying, you know, hey, um, you know, you have to have these on with you. So Bacon almost got killed trying to keep up with Aaron logging truck. Um, all pro. Hey, let me, Hey, if you're new here, please subscribe. Appreciate that. I purposely wore a cloth mask the entire time. So, yeah. So I was, you know, just like in the last show, I, I, I said the lack of inter rater reliability on mask was so obvious. And why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't you have, or, you know, if it, if it, if you can have a gathering at a church, right. But the church then has to have a certain mask that they issue to everybody and it's a disposable and it comes in. And, um, these, the reason these things weren't done is, is just as important as to explore as to like the procedures that were done, you know, like that was certainly a fatigued process right from the start. Um, it just, it doesn't make any sense. And, and I still go, I still at my local Walmart here, there's a lady who just wears a bandana like all the time as a, and it's completely open under underneath. And, you know, so I'm like, you know, so they're not telling her, Hey, you have to wear a mask or they're, you know, they don't have something in the break room, a box, a mask. I'm assuming. Um, so I have to wear a mask when I, when I teach, yes, it's in person. And, uh, it took, it, I don't, I'm not used to it. I don't like it. Um, it is, it is very difficult. Um, just, I, 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 the heat, I, I have heat buildup, um, with it and it is, yeah, it's a, it's a thinner mask. It's a one that hits, I guess the criteria, but even with that, like it, it, it's not, not good. Um, Atham. Good times. So not that it mattered anyway, but wouldn't we have biohazard bins for all of that damn PPE asking for a friend? So Bacon gets it. <laughs> so Bacon's figured it out. Um, no, Bacon, you're right on. Like, this is the question in anybody reading the book, right? We'll get to that point when they'll get to the end of that chapter or whatever. And they'll be like, hey, like, shouldn't we have had bins everywhere? Um, or in most places like grocery stores or, you know, places you'd have to, or, or as you're going in to your post office to mail, like wouldn't there have been, when I, when I went, I went to Lambeau field in green Bay, Wisconsin, the first day the pro shop opened after um, the, they was shut for COVID. So it was in June of 2020. And the reason I was there wasn't, <laughs> I didn't go there just for the pro shop. Um, we stopped, we were going on vacation north of Green Bay and we stopped in Green Bay and we ate at a restaurant across from the pro shop. And, and then there was a sign and it said, Hey, like pro shop open today. And I was the first one in line and, and so socially distanced. And 
um, I was on the news, right? Cause the local Green Bay news is there and they're like, would you agree to be interviewed? And I'm like, sure. Um, but I went in and like, they had somebody there, like all masked up at a, at a table and they made you wear a mask that they provided. They did not let you wear your, the one that you had, you had to wear the one that they gave you. So that was smart. Like, right. So they had their process of making sure that there was real life because Christ, I mean, you get COVID going through Lambeau field and players, you know, testing positive. I mean, you know, wipe out your season, but, um, but I'm like that, this is the way it's done. And then there was a, I know, I think at the end you could take the mask with you, but of course there was only one entrance. So if you try to come back with the mask, that would make you do, um, and it, it was, they didn't charge you for the mask. They gave you the mask, but I'm like, that wasn't done anywhere else. And, you know, these places got money for things. Mask didn't seem to be a problem after a while getting them in. I remember going to Menards and there were just like shelves and shelves and shelves of mask. Um, so yeah, <laughs> Christmas, my face when I'm done teaching. So I teach, you know, eight to five. Um, and uh, the, my face is just red. It's just, it's just puffed up and red after, after the mask stuff. And, and, uh, so yeah, it's a, it sucks. Um, so plus I just, I don't know. I feel like I, I am so expressive as a university instructor that it wipes out, um, some of that, um, by, you know, cause your my face is invisible or isn't visible, not is invisible. Who wants to start a nonprofit environmental group with me for mask pollution? A couple of commercials with masks blocking puppy and turtle snouts. Um, we'll be rich. Yeah. I, right. Everybody sees that. I saw one, I had to pick one up off my lawn when I mowed this week. Um, so, you know, there's people in, in the neighborhood, whatever wind blows it. Yeah. Just, just, just complete. Right. There's, there's nothing. I mean, and we don't even see bins, right? We don't see bins at areas to collect that or increased garbage contain. I don't know, like something or a public service announcement. <laughs> like what would it take to have Atham on a public service announcement, you know, saying, Hey, like, you know, when you're done with your mask or whatever, you know, don't throw it on the ground, put it in the garbage, throw it in a cave. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, those are, now I've got masks kind of every, you know, everywhere, like redundancy built in, um, in my car and stuff like that. Just some of these places, you know, you gotta have a mask to come in, but, um, don't see quite as much of that. Gore Monger too wrote make no mistake in the arms of an angel. will be asking for millions. Yeah. The song. Yep. Um, all pro 1110 Z with cases trending down. Now we'll have to see if there is a fine, Final a winter surge, or if this will finally be history. Yeah, right. I mean, and the thing is, how how are you going to differentiate um, typical winter colds, flu, and now probably allergies? Because the allergy season is longer where I'm at uh, because it's been warmer. So, like, how do you how do you distinguish between these things? So, um. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much people have left in them to, you know, they're fatigued on all of this stuff. Um, 
and watching where things are going with with uh, Southwest and their airline, you know, pilots and just other organizations. And I I don't, um, yeah. And I think a part two, like next week's, hopefully with with the attorney on, and we're going to talk about, you know, as, as she said, the issue with schools or the issue with a parent suing a school would be to be able to prove that the child contracted COVID at school. But if you, if you have people start to go down and fact finders or judges or juries start to make those decisions, like how do you function as a school? How do you, how do you do that? Like, um, and it's almost like if someone would take their mask down and cough, you'd have to like take everybody out of the school and clean it for two hours and then let everybody back in. I mean, I, there are some of these things like they would get so disruptive to systems as we know them that they would almost just not function, um, which is something that I think about and kind of, I don't know if I worry about it, but I, I mean, I think about it like it, it, it wouldn't take much or some wonky legal rulings to really just have boards of education. Because what happens is the parents are suing the board of education, the administrator, usually principal. Board of education, that's yikes. Like you don't want to be dealing with being sued. I mean, a lot of these people are making maybe $200 a month being on a board and then possibly, you know, there's, there's insurance that school boards have, but you can still be civilly sued or saying that you acted outside of what your training was at a school board and these people can, I mean, it can really be a bad situation if some of these cases go that way. So Mictibus wrote, this winter is going to be a disaster, calling it now. Studies are showing that the receivers of the meds are quickly losing their immune systems. So I think, Mictibus, one of the things is like the supply chain stuff coming into this this winter is like, any, I have never seen anything like this, right? I mean, um, lack of of supply and and shortage of labor and things like that so so i'm i i yeah i don't know i i think there's a potential for a really rough a really rough winter um so i mean what if we you know what if there is a transportation strike um it it was the amazing piece in you know, the book too of essential and non-essential. I mean, it, it was of course essential for truck drivers. Um, we kind of offloaded our risk onto a lot of truck drivers, even though they were having their, um, the, the stations, you know, you know what I'm talking about, where they would, they would get food and stay overnight in place of the truck stops. Those were being shut down. Waste stations are being shut down. There wasn't any effort for National Guard to have areas set up at waste stations um, portable bathrooms for truck drivers and even food like that should have happened. What did they, you know, these things, we treated truck drivers horribly through the whole pandemic. Um, and for them to walk and just, it would, you know, say, you know, good luck or, I mean, that's fully warranted. Like they did not get treated with respect. Um, it, it, it was, yeah, I'm, I, I am really, that was astounding to me. Um, so, 
Uh, I had one once um, that this would be over at some point, never again. <laughs> I had hope once. This is big, and yeah. I don't know when this will end. It's part of the reason, so when I write in the in the book, I write about this concept called finite voltage and the velocity of information. So in 90 days of chaos, most people crack. So I interviewed people in the military, Clay Martin, um, did you know through studies, interviewed other people, and there is this, this very defined phenomena of 90 days and you crack. A lot of people crack, they lose it. Um, and then once you get into something beyond that where chaos lasts, you're not sure when it's going to end. There's this thing called crowd in behavior. Crowd in behavior means I'm not sure when this is going to end. So I'm going to surround myself with pillows and video games and, you know, things that make me feel good, right? Mo movies and Netflix. Um, the problem with crowd in behavior is it signals that people are like, I'm kind of giving up. I don't know when this is going to end. I'm just going to wait it out. That means it's not really transitive anymore. It's not transitory. You don't know when, it, like it, with with a war, World War II ended, you know, deck of the Missouri, you know, signed and it's over. And I think right now people, because I've been asked, like, why don't you think people are going back into the job force? And why don't you think this is rebounding? Why don't you think this is rebounding? I said, because people don't believe this is done. Like there's no wide consensus with people. And they're still thinking this could be years. This might be two, three years. This might be till we have another administration, maybe that things change. And I said, that that's what's happening is people are in this. And it's very much if you look at people in the like 1930s, all the way through the 30s, like who are down in a you know, dust bowl and all this you know, economic stuff. Like they just, they thought it wasn't going to end. So they just kind of, they worked their lives, but they weren't going to take a big risk. I mean, if you're like a farmer in Kansas, I mean, you're not going to try to plant some, you know, expand your crops and stuff like that when a dust bowl's wiping everything out. I mean, you're just kind of in this survival mode and just, I mean, we're different today with some of that stuff. But, but yeah, people aren't going to venture and take these big risks, especially essential, non-essential. Like who wants to get on the wrong side of that? <laughs> I mean, who wants to start? Yeah, I'm going to start, um, you know, a business as um, a hairstylist or a salon, or I'm going to start a restaurant or I'm going to do wedding pictures. Well, you know, and suddenly essential, non-essential. And like, there's a lot of people who are just on the sidelines and they're like, until this clears up. And th that's the scary part. And people don't realize it, but I'll, I, it's, I wrote about it very extensively in the book. I'll talk about it on the show when I talk about chapters in the book, when you get to crowd in behavior, people think, oh yeah, that's a good sign because people then are are feeling happier about themselves. They're kind of, I'm like, yeah, it's actually a really bad sign. <laughs> it's a really, really bad sign um, because it means people no longer believe this is transitory. And then it usually lasts long and people expect bad news. Um, the whole mindset right now is what am I going to lose by doing this? Not what am I going to gain by doing this? That changed about four months in, that changed about last September, about September of 2020. So right. So you get to pick up on these things, but yet, like, how do you, how do you work with people in yourself and how do you kind of do this transitive process where you keep moving forward um, during these times when chaos is still present? The chaos is if you think X, Y plane, you, th you think of a comet, right? So a comet is, you know, like Halley's comet, you know, comes around and then when it's gone, you're like, you forget it, it's there. 
but it's still there. Like it's just out in this big orbit. Eventually, it comes back around. That's where we're at now with with this chaos. Like it hasn't ended. Like it's not a real stat. It hasn't like just like turned down to zero. It's not gone. Switched off. It's just that it's further out from us, and it'll swing back. Like I don't believe the mindset, the collective mindset, believes that this is done. Um. Now it could like rapidly get to that point if there's a enough people who strike and other things and every, everything kind of just slows down and had, and maybe it's moving in that direction. But I mean, think about people that, you know, or like, would you be willing to take on a risk of, you know, going to school for something where you could be deemed non-essential and, and, or would you be willing to take on a loan or a additional car loan or move somewhere or plan a vacation? I mean, maybe that, would you be willing to, Put some money down that's non-refundable on a vacation. I I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that right now. Um, so I took a hit with Disney. <laughs> I mean, they closed Disney three days before I was supposed to get there, and I got my money back from Disney, but I I didn't get a refund from the airline. Um. So, Gormanger wrote to McDevissa. I agree that immune system will be gone for those who took it. It'll be written off as something else as they die in a car wreck or virus. So. Again, in velocity of information, one of the the chapters focused on um, something we haven't we haven't heard, right? And that is exercise and eat nutritious food. And actually, like as a national campaign, why haven't we heard that? Um, we know that there were national campaigns and previous chaos events, World War II and other things, and and so I talked to Drew Bay and and I was kind of looking. And, and the army already had something like this in 2015. They put together for their civilian employees, kind of this army fitness thing. And, and I'm like, why didn't we hear about that? Like, why, why didn't we have that? Why didn't Amazon get up on board? And then like, you know, you're doing this online portal and um, you can get like discounts and like all of it would have made sense. Like it wasn't that hard to figure out. And we still haven't heard about it to this day. And as Drew Bay you know, said, even if gyms are closed, like, right, if you have a soup can, you can exercise or, I mean, there were, there were ways to do that. And it was never a national campaign, even though Fauci, and I have it in the book quoted from him saying, you know, he was out running and he was up building his immune system because obviously physical activity would increase his immune. So that's an axiom. So there's no question about that of, you know, exercise increases your immune system. Like that's been proven in numerous National Institute of Health studies. So, so forth. but why didn't we do it? And why, why haven't we done it to this day? Like, why is that not? Um, so those are questions that when you read them, you know, read these passages in the book, you start to be like, what, what, why didn't we? Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, it totally is weird that we didn't, um, we didn't have a national, we didn't have these commercials on TV with people doing that. We didn't have, you know, flyers coming to our house or portals you could log in or, but what did we have? We had New Mexico backs to the max where you could um, enter and, and get in a lottery for free lifetime fishing pass and stuff like that. And we had Baton, Lu Baton Rouge, right? Uh, Louisiana. Um, a week ago, where if you got vaccinated, they would remove a criminal offense off your record. <laughs> That's true. Like I, I posted that on Twitter. So like there's all of this like unusual messaging 
And the book again, brings your attention to that. And then when you go out, you start to see and look at things a little bit differently than what you did before. And you start to think about things differently. Um, Oh my goodness, Athlon, I can't say that. Excuses are already being made, the unmedicated twindemic short illness. So, yeah. Um, as, I mean, we, there there's, hasn't been clear communication on this. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I understand the frustration. I got the audio from that one government official saying every cause of death positive. That, I... I think I remember at one point that was coming coming out. Nothing has made sense during this entire mess unless you accept that it's all intentional. So, yeah, Amictibus, the, the part, when I was writing the book, it, it was more like the things that I wasn't observing or people I was in contact with weren't observing that seemed to be the biggest questions versus like the, the observations. I guess the observations which were different than what was would be anticipated or um, so, yeah. Like I, I, I envisioned that the postal carriers, because they get to so many homes and properties and stuff that, you know, it would make sense to outfit them with small containers of, of um, hand sanitizer, right? And then they could have had that in the vehicles with them or the Amazon drivers. And when you get your package, you'd also get a hand sanitizer, maybe for like a month. Like, wouldn't that have made sense? I mean, when those things were available and, you know, it, I I just, I don't get it. Like, I I don't know if I'm ahead of this. I, didn't, I don't claim to have this prophecy mind, but I'm kind of looking at this like, how is how are all these pieces just not picked up or like somebody contact me. I can sit down with you. I got some ideas here. Um, Gort Munger too wrote uh, exercise and fitness PSAs would be a thing for leadership who cared about their subjects on the USA. We are the fattest and the unhealthiest. So I thought about that, right? I thought the, the challenge, the pushback to PSAs on fitness would be right. That someone might feel I'm, I'm not fit or I don't, you know, so so there would be. Now, the way that I framed it and put it together with, um, you know, informed by Drew and stuff, wouldn't have done that. Like, you basically would have only been kind of, I guess, competing against yourself, right? Like, no one would know. It's just like, the whole thing is really probably less about fitness authentically. It's more making people feel that they have control over the situation, that they can do something. And... But yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. There's, there, there was probably, if there was a discussion, there was probably some discussion. Oh, there'll be some people pushing back on this. Amazing that the only viable solution to this whole thing was the one that made the most profit. Yeah, it's, um, ha, sorry, Jack. Oh, no. Um, got to scoot. Work early. Doc is doing a marathon. Enjoy. Yeah. And I, I've got to, <laughs> I got to, I got to hit the hay here too. So, anyway, we will wrap up this show. Um, I appreciate everybody. Again, if you can subscribe, share this with friends. If you think about something, post it down in the, the comments. You know, anything we've been talking to, any links or like just, hey, hey, this is happening with me with like school board meetings or something like that. Or, I mean, that helps. Um, I very much appreciate it. Everybody take care. 
And hey, before I'm I'm gonna do this right here. It's the doc show, and we're done. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.